Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Nick Sowers here with Nate Hyatt, as well as Brian Evans, the Rice County Sheriff, and Chad Murphy, the Rice County Undersheriff. And we're just coming at you with another episode of chatting with them, uh, where we're going to just learn some life lessons and learn some of the stuff that happened to you guys uh, two years ago, right? Almost three. Oh, yeah. So... 2019, April of 2019. Brian, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, whatever you're comfortable with sharing and uh, your life journey's been and brings us to uh, today. Originally from California, I played a lot of sports, uh, high school, college. After college, I, I went into the military. I uh, served 22 years in the United States Air Force, Security Forces. Um, after that career service, I felt that I still needed to call and uh, still serve. My wife got a phone call and asked if I would pursue the uh, position as sheriff in Rice County, which I did. Here I am today in Rice County as a sheriff for six and a half years. Yeah, kind of carrying on your family from your wife's side's legacy from Marvin and my, everything like that. Yes, my father-in-law was the sheriff at Edwards County, Kinsley, Kansas. After working the derailment, uh, he was offered a job with Santa Fe and 30-plus year career there as a detective with the Santa Fe Railroad. For those that are listening, Marvin's that kind of guy that when uh, I always explain him is when when after God made him, it broke the mold. He's definitely a, a phenomenal man and worked at Sterling Police Department even when I first started. And it was just that guy that you could always count on and call and, you know, if you needed a shift covered or you needed somebody to sit on the house for a search warrant or whatever. I mean, definitely very much old school law enforcement, uh, very old, old school you law know, enforcement. There was, there was a deal with Marvin and I, you know, after, you know, the first time I met him, you know, after being married to Angela. And uh, one day I go, hey, uh, does your dad know my name? Because he never called me my name. She goes, the day you call the Barry name, it's the day you need to worry. <laughs> what did he call you? Well, <laughs> explicits all the time. <laughs> you know, something head, you know, you just fill the blank in. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good story. So you ended up retiring from the Air Force, right? Yes, retired 20 years. Security Forces, yes. Okay, cool. All right, Chad, how about you? Born and raised in Barton County. Got into law enforcement by chance. You know, I either had a decision to make, go into law enforcement or go a different path. And so I chose law enforcement. How long have you been doing it now? Uh, certified since 2001, so 20 years. But got into it back in 1998. Did, where did you start at? Like, what did you? Uh, started with Elmwood Police Department as a reserve, volunteering time and seeing if this is what I wanted to do. It's kind of the way law enforcement used to be in the sense of, there was always some sort of a volunteer to kind of prove yourself that you're willing to put in the work first. And then it wasn't, it wasn't that whole expecting the world first and then you get the job. It's, it's the, you're going to put in the work and then we'll, we'll invest in you. I think Reno County still has that a the, little bit with making people go to the jail first. And yeah. And see, so, and I did start off in the jail uh, in Barton County and that's uh, worked there three years and, and I think it really helped me yeah. with my career. Do you feel like like it gives you that opportunity to really mingle and have those conversations with people and figure out the type of crowd you're going to be working with kind of thing? is Yeah. It also, I mean, it gave you kind of a rapport with some of the, the ones that were in the revolving door that are always getting in trouble, always getting arrested. Yeah. They know who you are. You know who they are. And uh, they know how you're going to treat them. And I never really had an issue with any of, the, any of the inmates that came in and out. They knew if they screwed up that bad shit was going to happen. And yeah. And so we just went that route. But again, like Nick was talking about with Marvin, 
you know, old school. That was back in the day when old school was old school. We didn't have a kinder, gentler law enforcement. <laughs> True. Times have definitely changed since then. Mm-hmm. So what brought you, I guess, to Rice County? If you just fast forward there. Actually, what brought me to Rice County, I actually started <clears throat> in the police department. I was living in Claflin, and there was a gentleman up there that was from the Rice County area and knew that Sterling was looking to hire an officer and put my name in for it. And I applied and got the job working at Sterling PD. Worked there for five years, then moved on to the sheriff's office. Yeah, and to be, he and I shared. I share. I have his radio number, if I remember correctly. You were five nineteen, weren't you? That's correct. Sweet. Oh, of course, I can't carry on how like the badassness that he brought to it, but you know, I'm trying to. I'm trying to keep a. Uh, I'm trying to keep the the you know five nineteen number and name clean. They asked me if I wanted to go to five eighteen, and I was like, no, no. There's there's more to that story we won't talk about on here. But if you look at the KC Post website, you'll understand. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Forgot to ask, how long have you been sheriff now? You're going up on six? Six. Uh, one, one and a half years appointed, one term, and now my second term. So six and a half years. Okay, cool. Um, what are some of the, I mean, because it was like you you were kind of unique in the sense of, you know, Chad and I, you know, started on the street and, and moved our, you know, moved through that. It, and whereas you kind of, it, it seems well, like it you're, you're drinking like a, you know, you're drinking through a fire hose. You're having to learn how to be a law enforcement officer as well as how to be a manager, how to manage a jail and how to manage the road and all that other kind of stuff all at once. Right. Coming from the military side, you know, I had management leadership. I supervised hundreds to thousands of individuals. Um, but uh, we did a lot. I did the law enforcement than the military. Constitutional law was different when I came to the Kansas Law Enforcement Training Center. They say UCMJ is a whole new monster compared it, it, to... It's a huge monster, yeah. yes. And, you know, I was I was trying to get through school. I was trying to manage the SO, the jail, though I had Chad to lean on and said, hey, you know, this is what needs to happen. And Chad took, you know, he took charge of that stuff and relieved me of a lot of uh, stress because Kayla TC was not no easy beast, a lot of studying. And uh, it was all new to me. Issues came up while I was there, you know, and he kept me informed. And if I kept myself engaged in the uh, in the sheriff's office while going to school, trying to, I don't think we were fully manned either at the time. I don't know. But we were going through issues ourselves. I, I would say that you probably spent more time understaffed than fully staffed. So that would probably be a good assumption to make. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, as in, in the military, they always say, latch on to that, latch on to that person and learn. There's always room to learn, and, and me and Chad go back and forth. We're always trying to learn from each other, and we learn from learn from you, learn from any officer out there. We're not. We have to learn all the time, constantly. Yeah. So I guess we could just uh, really jump right into it because I'm sure there's going to be quite a bit to to unpack through through all of this because it's a pretty complex thing. So I guess just to kind of set the stage and correct me if I'm wrong in any of this stuff. The gentleman, I don't know if you even want to refer to him by name, but I guess... David. Okay. So David, uh, you know, he was a gentleman that was kind of under suspicion, I guess, for a murder. And it wasn't something that had been proven in any way. And there was... He was was under suspicion for a missing person. person, Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's... There's no evidence of a a homicide. Right now, it's still considered a missing person. Got it. Sweet. Uh, These are the things I want you to correct me on if I'm I'm misspeaking. And that was back in November when I was was at the Kansas Law Enforcement Training Center. Yeah. And that was going going on. So... So November of 2019? 
No. 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 15. 15. Okay. Okay. And I, ju- I just got there okay. recently and it, it, you know, it happened, you know, and here I was up there and chats down by the SO and we have this issue going on already. And, and then basically one thing kind of led to another then through, through the process of the missing person and some search warrants and stuff like that, where a warrant ended up being issued for his arrest. A right? federal, federal indictment. Yeah, federal indictment. And I was relieved it was for some weapons charges of some kind, right? That's correct. Considering David's history, we kind of knew that it wasn't going to be your average, typically walk up, howdy, hey, you got a warrant, sit in my car. You know, you knew that there was there was some history there compared to some other people that we may arrest. I mean, you, as far as criminal history and stuff. You guys want to go into that a little bit, like... Well, see, the thing is, background. you can go back, Chad, you can go back to 17, 17, where it kind of started in the sense of where uh, it was a chase back to his house or his residence. You want to start there? Well, yeah, back in 17, he was in a car chase from LOPD, chased him to his house, ended up taking him into custody without incident. Search warrant was executed on his residence for the missing person. During the course of that search warrant, there was... Illegal firearm that was located. We took him into custody. I mean, it took a while for the federal indictment to come out. It seemed like it took a long while. It did. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of hoops we had to jump through. Yeah. In order to get that, David. I mean, yes. Did he have a history? Yes. But David is one of those type of people that you know. I was talking. I'm talking to you right now. April 29th of 19. When I made that car stop, there were three people in that vehicle. You know, him, his girlfriend, and their seven-year-old kid, who was sitting right behind David. So I didn't expect, I mean, I figured he'd either run or fight me. And when they stopped, I was like, ooh, gearing up for, gearing up to whoop someone's ass. So And to kind of back up even on that a little bit more <laughs> was, you know, we were trying to, I guess, more tactically do that warrant to the best of our abilities because we didn't want it to go bad. We didn't want the bad situation. So we were. We were you, trying to keep him away from his house. Yeah. And you guys knew this guy was dangerous because of his background from the military. Well, absolutely. Was he a, he was a sniper? Was well, in the, uh, that's confirmed. Right? I don't have no idea. Yeah, that's, yeah. I don't know. I but, just, I just know he, it was yeah, Marine, he, Marine he Corps. In, he dealt in weapons. Yeah. We can say that. He dealt, well, I don't know if he's a sniper or not, but. Well, every, that, that was a rumor that I had heard around exactly. town. We know how rumors right. go. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and every Marine's a rifleman. So, I mean, he's going to have, you know, experience Skills. with, with Sometimes operating things. a rifle to at least some degree of marksmanship. And he spent. Couple tours over there, didn't he? That I can't comment to either. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't, don't know. Yeah, I have that, don't have yeah. that information. So if I remember, because you guys even had me sitting out, kind of observing and watching, and we were trying to establish, you know, because Alden has a post office, so you know, we were trying to establish like what what's one way that we can maybe take care of this warrant without it going bad. All of those efforts just kind of never came to fruition to where we were able to tactically and safely execute that arrest warrant. Well, and saying when he came, when they came to a car stop, I didn't, that's, I figured he was ready just to get it over with and get done with it. Cause normally he would run to his house and barricade himself in his house. So that's what I kind of was looking that he was going to do. And so, I mean, walking up on that car that day, you know, I had that seven year old looking at me, sitting right behind him as I rounded that corner of the rear of the, cause I did a passenger side approach. And next thing I know, I saw a 1911 and a muzzle flash and then immense pain. Well, then if we if we back up even further, one thing I want to talk about from seeing the the Casey's video that I think is important to this uh, to this conversation is, again, you even did your best there because you both were inside of Casey's Mm -hmm. like that's where like you were inside just like every day getting your drinks, 
paying for your food, and then he walks in. Nope. Yeah. Other way around. He was already at the register okay. when I walked in. Uh, in fact, I didn't even make it to get a drink. I just walked in, recognized him, and I walked out. And you could you could see, in, in my opinion, just because we get paid to see people and know what you could see that internal ethos battle with you of should I arrest him here or should I not? And thinking, okay, if it does go bad, now we're in a crowded convenience store where people are at. So you kind of did a tactical retreat as far as backing out and making a car stop where you were away from people. Right. Because I didn't want anybody else to get hurt. So you make the traffic stop. And then you see the, the, I mean, was there any type of discourse? Did you even get a chance to do the whole like, Hey, the reason I stopped you, you got a warrant, anything like that? Like, how did it? Basically what happened was when I walked up on the vehicle, of course, did a passenger side approach as he was in the passenger seat. As I rounded the corner and, and reached down and touched the rear of the vehicle, all I told him was, come on, David, you got a warrant. Let's get it taken care of. Like I've done in the past with him and never had any issues. He's always complied. And then, like I said, I saw a 1911 muzzle flash and then the immense pain. Had he ever had a federal warrant before? Not to my knowledge. So this was this was definitely even outside of his comfort zone. I mean, he had district warrants before, but never anything federal. Right. Okay. Walk us through, you know, the immense pain and what you were thinking and feeling and seeing. And Well, basically when I saw the, the muzzle flash and then I felt the pain, it felt like a hot poker going through my shoulder. Uh, he shot me just under my jawline on the right side of my neck, which took out my jugular, blast damaged my carotid in my voice box. Uh, went ripped through my deltoid muscle, muscle and which paralyzed my right arm. The only thing I could do is move my fingers and my wrists. It's the only movement I had on my right side. When that shot hit me, it kind of rocked me back to my right side. He took a second shot, which got me in the left shoulder, which obliviated my collarbone. Uh, so therefore, on my left side, it's solid bone. There's no clavicle in that area. It's just all calcified bone. Uh, spun, spun me around as I was trying to get to my truck recover and, and then i take a shot in the back which was an angle shot so he shot me on the right side of my back which that round still lodged by my spine that's one took me to the ground so just kind of imagine sticking your hands in your pockets and just fall face first to the ground and that's what i did broke two ribs uh, when i hit the ground he came up on me put a fourth round in my hip and uh, came out my stomach and then in, from what witnesses say there were too many people coming to give me aid so he couldn't come up to do the fifth and final round and what they were saying is he was walking up to put around in the back of my head. You were able to get a transmission out to dispatch. After I opened my eyes back up, because when I hit the ground, I mean, there was quite a bit of pain. I opened my eyes, looked across the street underneath my truck, saw Casey's and Sonic, realized, okay, I'm not dead. So I got to fight through this now. Rolled over to my right side because I was laying on my left side. So I'm trying to roll over onto my right side so I can get my radio off my hip, my portable radio off my hip. Uh, got that done and I called out twice that I'd been shot both times. I told dispatch I'd been shot twice. So that's an eerie sound when you listen to it. I agree. So after I did that, I dropped my radio because I couldn't hold it up any longer and then concentrated on my breathing, trying to get my blood pressure down, my pulse rate down so I wouldn't bleed out because I could feel the warmthness of the, of the blood running down my neck and my shoulder. And I think it's worth talking about the people that came to help you. Michael Craven, he was the first one to get to me. Uh, he has since passed from cancer. But he was recently retired from the military, three months out of the military. So he showed up, basically went right to work on me. Stuck a finger and a thumb and both bullet holes to keep me from bleeding. Kept me talking, made sure I was still coherent and then I was still with him. But I didn't realize I was trying to keep myself calm so I wouldn't bleed out. And, you know, it didn't help when they're screaming at me. <laughs> you know, and then um, 
I had Leslie Wolf show up. Uh, Will Cundis showed up. Local people that I knew from Sterling. And whether they know it or not, you know, they they were my guardian angels that day. I mean, if you think about it, those people literally ran into a gunfight. Unarmed. Unarmed. No body armor. No nothing. Like that. I just, I'm, 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 when I heard that, I was absolutely blown away by that. So was I after the, after the fact, once I realized what was going on, the first paramedic to get on scene, was Misha Holiday. She re- received notification through Snapchat. Oh, wow. So that's how she got there. She was at home off duty and when the Snapchat came through, she ran and got to me as quickly as possible and she was there pretty quick. Was she the first person on scene as far as first responders were concerned? Mm, I believe so. Okay. And then uh, you said Sarge showed up on scene and he brought you some. Oh, he brought me a lot of relief um, just because you don't know where the bad guy's at. You don't know where your shooter's at. So you don't know if he's still on scene, if he's going to start taking more people out. Uh, so when when Rick Tomer, sergeant with the Sterling Police Department, showed up, he uh, brought my stress level down, my anxiety down, because now I felt safe because I knew I couldn't use my arms. They both were paralyzed. Another gun in the fight. Um, yeah. Staying in the fight was my most important aspect at the time was, you know, because I wasn't going to die that day. I had made peace. You know, am I afraid to die? No, but I made peace. I knew it was in God's hands from there on out, and I just had to fight to stay alive, and that's what I did. So how, how did it seem when, I mean, you, t- you hear a lot of things of stress responses. So do you remember tunnel vision? vision? Do you remember auditory exclusion? Uh, do you remember... Did it seem like that whole incident took for an hour? What was your perception of all that? Basically, the, the perception from start to finish was I didn't have tunnel vision because I kept kept watching her and I kept watching the kid and watching, you know, as I'm making the approach and watching David. I didn't get tunnel vision until I saw that weapon and then the working into that weapon and it, it appeared to have like a, a cannon at that time. And then the muzzle flash was just huge. It didn't seem like it took very long for people to get to me as far as medical personnel. I mean, I know it didn't take long for civilians to get to me, but as far as medical, even for, for Tomer, it didn't seem like it took very long for him to get to me either as I'm hearing him pulling up. and Was uh, he on duty at the time? Or yes. Was, yeah, okay. yeah, he was the on duty for, for Sterling. There's a lot of things I don't remember as far as things I didn't see at the time, you know, like with Sheriff Evans. You know, I don't remember him pulling up, but I know he did. But I didn't see him at the time. You know, what I remember is what I what I physically saw in front of my face. You know, I remember Keith Vats, the paramedic, telling me that we're going to give you some pain medication so that way you can get, get you a little more comfortable. Uh, I remember Tomer trying to cut my jacket off with a pair of suture scissors. Trying. Operative word, trying. <laughs> Operative word. He he couldn't. And again, that's you got to know where your equipment's at. Yeah. You know, and and he just didn't find his utility uh, shears to t- cut my coat off. So until after everybody else got there. Well, and uh, also for those that are listening that don't know, Sergeant Tomer had been in an, an officer-involved shooting. That was even when I was a kid, so it had been a long time ago. So. 25 years prior. I yeah, mean, and so. Why. Yeah, so Chad was saying that, you know, that was kind of nice, too, because it was somebody that, knew he what he was yeah knew what he was feeling knew what he was dealing with yeah and that was some of that serenity that was brought to you it not was. only the other gun in the fight but just knowing that like this dude's been where i'm at right and so when they got me loaded up uh three paramedics and two techs worked on me on the way to the lions hospital my anxiety went back up because i didn't have that comfort anymore you know everybody was still at the scene and here i am 
with EMS, still not knowing where my shooter is. So we roll up into into the hospital. Of course, uh, Lyon, Rice County District Hospital did an amazing job of locking it down, making sure nobody else was in there. About approximately 20 to 30 nurses and doctors that came in, you know, not just the ones working that day, but the ones coming in and off duty because of an officer involved shooting didn't know it was me, you know, until they opened the doors. And a really good friend of mine who's a nurse there, you know, she pops the doors open and she sees me and she goes, what the fuck, Murphy? <laughs> you know, and just small town problems there. It, really. it is. I mean, you, you're going to know everybody. So, And then my wife, she was approximately 10 minutes behind it because she knew I wasn't coming home. She knew that because I was on the phone with her and I said, hey, I think David's here at Casey's. I got to go. I'll, I'll talk to you later. Love you. Bye. And she goes, OK. So she knew I wasn't going to be home for a while. So she drove to Casey's to get herself something to drink and was told by friends that I'd been shot. Our youngest son watched the ambulance leave with me in it, not knowing that I was in it. She drives over there and, and like any spouse would be, I mean, she was, <clears throat> didn't know what to think. Yeah. And I remember watching Rick's video on that when we were putting together your presentation. And the part that I never really realized or thought of was, well, first of all, it's, it's, comical now in hindsight but you know sarge the first thing sarge said and i call tomer everybody calls him tomer i call him sarge so sorry uh, for those that are listening i'm referring to rick tomer but sarge when he sees chad's wife the first words out of his mouth are oh fuck yeah <laughs> like those are the first things <laughs> and you know basically having to kind of give her essentially just like the notification of what happened and that he's okay and then proceeds to try to put his son in the front seat. Well, his son showed up on scene and was helping. And he actually had some of your blood on his hoodie, what I saw in the video. And, you know, people never think of these things. But I was just thinking to myself, like, she had to look at that the whole way to the hospital. That you, would, not to correct, or going to correct you there, was Tomer Sarge's son. Oh, okay. It wasn't my son. It was okay. Sarge. Oh, oops, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sarge Lane Tomer. Yeah. So, I mean, because he's on the fire department, fire department, yeah, first he, was, he was there for his first responder. And, and of course you go to people that, you know, mm -hmm. so he had, he had laying his son, drive my wife and my son to the hospital. My wife was a trooper. I mean, there's twice, three times that I know that she broke down during this whole ordeal. And the one time is when a nurse hauled it out. I count six holes, you know, cause she's expecting a through and through in my shoulder. Cause that's what she kind of thought she had when. You know, when she was being explained that I'd been shot. Mm -hmm. So she's expecting, you know, through and through my shoulder. Hey, that's okay. We can, we can work through that. You know, that's, it's bad, but it's not as bad. And then I hollered out, I count six holes and I could hear her. I think all of, all of Rice County heard her. <clears throat> so, and I told one of the doctors to, to get out of my way. And of course, when I'm yelling this, this is what I'm sounding like. Because mm, of the damage to your voice box. Because I couldn't scream, you know. So I, um. Uh, told the doctor in a not so nice way to, to move so I could see my wife and those are the times you get a little grace and understanding from people yeah when you say things like that there's yeah. like okay yeah I think he understood that once my arms healed up that I was going to take care of business afterwards so he moved uh, so my wife came up and she was talking to me and I, and I and I remember telling her you know that I'm gonna be okay I'm gonna be fine it's just a grace as yes, I'm telling her this, I've got blood squirting out my neck. You know, we go through a lot of things and emotions, you know, after the shooting. You know, we we laugh a lot. You know, uh, we cry a lot about it because, 
you know, there's still some things that get or triggers that, wow, I didn't think about that. Or we go back and review some of the videos that we do have, and it's like, wow, you know, and reading over doctor's notes and, and exactly where the location of the rounds were and how close they were to ending my life that day. You know, finding out that he used bald ammunition and it wasn't full metal jackets, you know, because if it was full metal, I wouldn't be here today. You mean hollow point? Hollow point, yeah. yeah. hollow point, yeah. 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 But, that, he was, that, but he was using copper or brass rounds. Well, as far as it, I mean, if you had to choose which one to be shot at, it would not be the hollow point. It yeah. wouldn't, it would definitely be the other that you could have that through and through. Yeah. Um, so if we back up just a little bit, so we, you, so did you hear this come out on the radio, Sheriff? Is that what, how, how you came into the equation? Like where, where were you when I, this happened? I was south of Chad, approximately a mile and a half. I was on the uh, south edge of town in Sterling. I was at the American Legion and I was Monday night, hamburger night down there helping. I hear. It's still tough. Oh, yeah. You need to take your time. You hear that sound. And it's your partner that, that's been shot. He's asking for help. And you don't want it to be true. And as I walk to my car, I hear it again. I'm like, good night. I got my car and I take off. I, I head north. And, you know, you can't get there fast enough. I don't know how fast I was going through town. I, I don't care. <laughs> um, that's my partner. That's 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 my undersheriff. Uh, that's my brother. And when I see Rick in front of me, and I about hit Rick, because I'm 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 coming in hard, and I'm, he's coming in hard, and I'm tripping brakes, and I thought I was parked in the northwest lane, going out of Sterling. But actually, after reviewing the video, I was parked in the south or the the east lane, east side, going north. I I pulled in uh, perpendicular. And I get out and I see Chad there laying on the ground. I'm like, this is not real. Cannot be happening. You know, and I asked two questions. What direction and what were they driving? Did you know who it was at that point? Had a feeling. Okay. And I get back in my car. Um, I was very upset. And I thumped the steering wheel a couple of times, got my composure a little bit, reached up on my uh, visor on the passenger side, pulled down paperwork, confirmed with dispatch on the 28th that Chad, Chad ran. And it came back to the vehicle that. For everybody listening, a 28 is what we call a. Like a, a tag, when we run a tag through dispatch, we call it a 28. So, continue. So, it confirmed. And so, I had told dispatch that concentrate in Alden to David's residence. And so, I took off uh, northbound on 14 and then went westbound on Avenue T towards Alden. As I drove down Avenue T, I come short of Alden into the Frederick parking lot where all the combines are and everything stopped, pulled over. And uh, donned my gear and pulled out my uh, AR-15, my M4. And I was waiting for backup. Two more officers coming right now. Um, Didn't know what to expect. I didn't know. I knew we were going to go into a gunfight, but I didn't want to go alone. Yeah. Who were your backup officers that were headed your way? Uh, It was Max Max Bryant and uh, Caleb Rankin at the time. 
Gotcha. And so I'm sitting there and I'm I'm standing outside my vehicle on the, <coughs> on the back side. I'm trying to stay I'm I'm trying to stay at a point to where I can see into Alden, and there's a ridge and I don't see any cars leaving. Uh, I'm waiting, so I edge my car a little closer to get that hill out of the way a little bit. I didn't want to sit there and spot myself out. Um, trying to stay down low a little bit below the road. Uh, not all roads are flat in Kansas, but. <laughs> You're talking like right as there as you come into town by right. the cemetery. There's yeah. a little ridge, yeah. So uh, then I see an individual in the, in the roadway uh, waving his hands around. I'm like, who is that? So I edge up a little closer. And I'm like, what? That's Ed Coker. And so I drive up there and I go, he goes, they just left about three, about two minutes ago. And he goes, Russ is trying to call you. So I call Russ. Uh, that's his brother. And as I'm talking to Russ, he says, well, I got it. I got him in, in view. I said, what road you on? Okay. He goes, a dirt road. Okay, there's plenty of dirt roads out there. Goes, <laughs> which which one? I go, did you go with the split, the turn, the S turn? Did you go straight? He goes, yes. I said, okay, you're still on, you're on T then. Then they made some corners. Said, Don't get involved. Let's just stay back. I'm waiting for backup. So then as I'm talking to Russ, here comes Max and Caleb Rankin behind me. So Max pulls up to the side of me. I said, you take lead in case he goes off road. You go follow. I was in a Dodge Charger, so it makes sense to have him in the lead to go and chase and all parallel and then ranking with the other SUV behind me can do whatever he needs to do on the chase. So we take off. I tell Max, use the blacktop. It's going to be the fastest way. We can go faster on blacktop. So we get on the blacktop and we take off and we get down on Avenue S and we are moving and I'm talking to Russ and he said, uh, I'm sitting back. I can't remember where exactly where he is at. He said, I'm sitting back over here and watching the, the car is parked in the driveway of the residence of, of Tom Batten's house, Tom's house, David's father. And I said, okay, we're, we're here. He said, okay, right there. He goes, the car's leaving. I said, okay, I figure, I'm figuring at this time we have a car chase. We're going to have a car chase, and he's following the car still. And next thing you know, I hear gunshots and then the phone goes dead with with russ at that point i i'm telling max hey you got shots fired at russ i don't know what's condition i don't know what's going on we need to we need to step it up so we're we're hammering we're not too far behind i mean this is all happening within minutes of this conversation you and i are having now and we i see his car or max sees his car we all see his car down the corner on the west I want to say the west end of the corner before it goes back to the north. Yeah, because there's a there's a curve there, right? Where it curves and goes back north. So his his vehicle's pointing north, and I'm thinking, okay, the vehicle's gone. Maybe the car before the railroad tracks or before in the the corner. He, David gets out of the car and fires back at that at his vehicle and stops him in his tracks right there from following him. Well, as we see the vehicle, Max is in front, and as he gets through the, oh, I see these trees. I still see these trees to this day. That's a kill zone. You know, on both sides, you have the tree row, and it's basically a tunnel. And I'm just thinking he's going to pop out of that tree row somewhere. As Max got out of that tree row, cleared it in front of the house, I hear four shots. 
four or five shots, five shots ring out at max. At max. I and mean, you can see the rounds hitting in front of Max's vehicle and the dirt moving. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, we need to push through fast because we, now we know where the shots are coming from. It's coming from our left side, but we're not, you can't look over there and drive and you're not going to try to spot the guy. It's too hard. So at this point, David is firing at you from the house. From the house. Which is there prior to the curve. Correct. And you're driving in front, in front of, of the house. As these shots are ringing out. Yes. Got you. You got shots going. I don't know what status of Russ is. And after those five shots, it, be, it was complete silence. It seemed like it lasts forever. And then I come through in front of the house and I hear this like an explosion from, from a high power rifle. And I could feel a concussion on my left side. At that point, I just laid over in the console, waited for impact. And I got impacted. I got, I got shot. I went through my back door, went through my, my B pillar, came through my front door, came out of my armrest, and through my leg. That's some like magic, magic bullet theory stuff like you hear with Kennedy because. Um, you know, the back door and then the B pillar is the area where your seatbelt hooks up. It's like that's where steel. it anchors. So that's pretty hard metal. Yes. I mean, that's designed to take impacts. And if you think about it, a bullet hitting that is like a, an impact, a collision. And those are designed to handle collisions. So it goes in that door, basically kind of takes a left hand. It followed the door because it went in the door. Now, if that wouldn't have followed the door, it would hit me straight in the back. So it followed the door, went through the B-pillar, and, and it went through our the driver's door out the armrest, in the armrest and out the armrest, 90 degrees, hit a piece of plastic. <laughs> what kind of, did you did you figure out what kind of rifle it was? That was Alicia? 340 Weathery Magnum. Goodness gracious. <laughs> and, you know. No, and, and it bounced off a piece of plastic. <laughs> yeah. At the end. Yeah, right. right. And, you know, and the thing about it is, you know, things slow down. So once... I get shot, and I'm and I'm laying in the console, laying over the console, have the radio mic in my hand, one hand on the steering wheel on the bottom. And I'm laying over, I'm looking up, and I see all this debris. I take my left hand off the steering wheel, off the, I take my foot off the accelerator, because I was veering to the right. I was going towards that field, and figure if I go in the field and start blowing tires, that's a bad spot to be. So I put my left hand on my leg, look down, and I went, oh, some bitches shot me. You know, and I go, and then I thought to myself, you just ruined my jeans too, man. It just, it just, <laughs> the things that go through your mind, right? And I see all this debris in, above my glasses and everything. And then everything I'm thinking, okay, control vehicle, get off the X, which is the kill, kill zone and keep driving. That's what I did. And I, all I did was look over the dash, look for Max Bryant's overhead lights and uh, I figured I'm going to hit him, push him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. I'm going to push you into the, into the tree line or something. As I was doing that, there was four more shots that rang out behind or at me. I don't know. Caleb's vehicle was never hit. Neither was, neither was uh, Max's. And we get in the corner. I get out of the vehicle. I do all my checks. I even had Max come over after, after we had four more shots come out at us in the corner. And they were going through the tree line. And Russ could still hear those rounds going. He was behind that tree line <laughs> and still running, I think. But he heard those shots. He's like, damn. But once everything calmed down, I was doing my immediate check, and I had Max come over and do a secondary check. I couldn't check my back. couldn't check my head. couldn't do anything like that. 
And Max is an EMT as well, right. so he has some experience with Absolutely. handling stuff like that. Absolutely. So he, he checked me and everything, and but when I told him initially, you know, I asked those guys first. I said, hey, you guys okay? Yeah, we're good. I said, well, I'm shot, but I'm good. Max goes, you're shot, and he's got on the radio, and I'm like, Max, they're, they're not going to come out for us right now. We're okay. We're good. I said, just give me my go back. He goes, you need a tourniquet? I said, no, more ammo. <laughs> and so he did that, and... Uh, and that's when uh, you were on the uh, on the uh, east side of the of the, the residence, and we had pretty much containment. Now we're just sitting sitting and waiting now. And yeah, those guys, we, I think our guys did good. Max did good. Caleb did good. Did good. I think we all did good. Well, and and where I kind of come into the equation is I was actually at the gym getting ready to work out, and got a call from a friend of mine screwed that up didn't we? from Ellenwood. Yeah. Yeah. From Ellenwood saying, Hey, I heard on the, and he was a part-time officer for us. And he, Hey, if I heard, I heard about Chad, you know, if you need anything, call me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, Chad's been shot. And I'm like, there's no way, like there's, there's no way. So I, I immediately load my stuff back up and get my ass out the door. I don't remember seeing anyone talking to anyone, anything at all. At which point, my phone rings and it's my chief, Derek Plouts. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, Hey, Chad's been shot. I don't know much. Uh, get your stuff together and get out. And I'm like, Hey, I'm already on my way. Tom called me. So um, I'm in route. And I get home and I turn my radio on. It was the first thing I did. And the, the first things I can remember hearing on the radio was them calling for a helicopter for you. Like that we need. And then and I am freaking out at this point. Um, not something I do often when it comes to when it comes to stress. I mean, just having done this for the better part of a decade now, you know, handling stress is just something that's we're inoculated against at most times. So of course, I'm assuming the worst at this point, and I, that's all I know. And I change out of my gym clothes and into a full uniform in record time. I it was not long. Grab my precision rifle grabbed my ar and headed out the door and got to casey's and then the first thing that i saw was and and i guess to back up a little bit um i know i've told you this before is they they tell us in the academy and all kinds of other trainings to go through those thought experiments of if this happens what do i do with this if that happens how would i respond you know and the one what if I'd never gone through in my mind was seeing one of my brothers and one of my friends with bullet holes in them. Never did that ever cross my mind of something that I would have to be dealing with ever. And I was not dealing with it well mentally at That's all. not something that they probably, you really think of in a small town that you're going to have that issue. Right. But you know what's interesting that people say that is there have been more officer-involved shootings in Sterling, Kansas than anywhere else in the county. Yeah. <laughs> so Sterling, Kansas, if everybody's like, oh, it's just Sterling, has the highest statistical right right now of officer-involved shootings of in our county. Yeah. So, um, But, you know, never was I actually more happy to know that Chad was actually in an ambulance and gone. Because at that point, it was like a, a switch flipped for me. Because it's like, okay, I don't have to deal with that. Because it's at that point, it's 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 time to go to work. It's not time to process my feelings. It's not time to think about much of anything else other than handling the threat and handling the problem. You know, it's just it's it's binary. We're either going to have mission success or mission failure. And with you saying that, that's that's an issue that I see with law enforcement today is that 
we don't prepare ourselves enough for seeing a, a, a fellow officer down my son was in his third week of the academy because this was on a monday and he just got done eating supper when my sister in georgia called him and asked him how's your dad doing and he's like what are you talking about well your dad's been shot so it went from me being shot to georgia before my kids were notified in Hutchinson, Kansas. Well, Yoder. Yoder. Hutchinson, Kansas. But even then, I had kids being notified on Facebook. <clears throat> That's how they learned I'd been shot, was off Facebook. Because we just couldn't try to, you know, my wife was trying to make sure that I'm going to be okay, that nothing's going to happen to me. And then trying to make phone calls in between all this, getting everybody notified. Hey, this is what's going on, you know. And, and so, you know, you and I have talked about this. This is one of those things when... You know, when you came to visit me in the hospital, you know, you can't control the emotions at that time, mm. you know, because even then when you came and saw me, I mean, I was still bandaged up. I still had blood, probably still had blood all over me because I hadn't been cleaned up yet because they were still worried about my injuries. You know, they're telling me I'm going to be in, in the hospital for 30 days for my gunshot wounds, a year in inpatient rehab and a year and a half of outpatient rehab. I was like... No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. And and to back up a little bit, I know that that's that's important, and that's something that we have talked about and stressed and worked through because there is a lot of that, I guess. Um, just to put a word to it, machoism mm-hmm. with just deal with it, just deal with it, suck it down. And the, no, <laughs> that that's just not that's not how this works. It's not like I mean, at the time, like I said, when when I showed up on scene at that specific time, it was time to handle business. Right. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not processing the emotions right now. It's it's literally a blank slate at this point. I'm I am in autopilot mode to go handle an issue. Mm-hmm. And uh you know to to continue segueing on that, you know, D- uh, Derek Plouts, my chief at that point, and this is where I come in the equation where I'm hearing Max saying, "Hey, we're getting shot at. Yep. Like we're we're taking rounds right now." So in my head, and thank God I'd been working for you guys part-time, and had been doing some venturing into the county and kind of trying to get to learn it, which was my whole point. Well, one of many points behind being a part-time deputy was to learn the county a little better. Right. And so when I hear them saying, hey, like we are taking shots right now, I'm like, holy cow. We are at Avenue, essentially V, basically. Well, I guess we're closer to you. Yeah. We're at Avenue U and essentially kind of 16th-ish road, K-14. And I'm doing the math in my head and I'm like, oh, my goodness, we have to go from Avenue U and 16th to Avenue S and 5th? 5th, yeah. Avenue S and 5th. And I'm like, holy cow. Because guns, gunfights, as you know, are milliseconds. Yep. And it's done and it's finished. And now I have to drive 20 plus miles to get to help, to help them. I mean, they're on their own for 20 plus minutes. Oh, yeah. Granted, uh, we covered a lot of ground very, very quickly. <laughs> um, you know, so we, we, I grab my precision rifle, load up with Justin Carter, and he's driving the Explorer. And I remember we were, we were like second in line of three cars. There was uh, Lions PD's Tahoe, us, and then another Lions PD uh, SUV behind us, which I think had Corey and Eddie Beckett in it. And so, and we, we were, we, we had the vehicles, like the, the, the Tahoe could only go 100. So basically, we're doing 100 the whole way. And I remember going there and I got my rifle between my legs and it's just silence because you're just driving like you would anywhere else. 
just driving and it's quiet. And I remember looking over at Justin Carter going, this is some scary shit. And he goes, no shit. And just rolling through the fact that like, I am on my way to a gunfight. Not that I might, not that if maybe that I may have to do this someday, I am on my way to a gunfight end of story. And we still go anyway, knowing that that's where we're headed. And we go through Alden every bit of a hundred. I don't remember Alden. I don't remember Alden at all. <laughs> Just a blur. And I mean, most the... people don't remember Alden. <laughs> <laughs> and and then the Tahoe kept going straight. And thank God this is where the the county working for you guys came in because I told Justin I said this doesn't make sense. We have to go to S and Fifth. This is T. If we keep going, this is T. This doesn't make sense. Continue on the blacktop. Take the curve. I said, after the curve, we'll be at S, then go east. And that's what we did, and it was muddy. And I remember there was one time that, I don't even know if I've told you this yet, but we went through like a mud hole, and then we, we went through a mud hole at like every bit of 80. And because Justin's like, uh-oh. And I said, fuck it, bro, punch it. Like, we're getting there one way. Or, I don't give a shit what Sarge has to say about this vehicle. Because <laughs> Sarge is always on our asses about, you know, vehicle care and stuff. And especially me. But that's for a different day. Um, uh, and and so as we go through the mud hole, like bells and whistles start going off on the dash. And he's pushing the gas and nothing's happening. So I'm, like that was another like layer where we were like, oh shit, are we even going to be able to get there to help? And I was like, just push it to the floor and see what happens. And the car decided it wanted to, I think, traction control engaged. You're right. And it responded. And then we get there. And, you know, I'm telling at this point, I'm even calling Max on the radio, but just Max. Like, I'm not even using radio numbers or anything. And I'm like, hey, Max, we're, we're here. We're here. You know, and, and I heard Sheriff was hit at that time. But we didn't know at all what your status was. All we knew was you were shot. And that was it. Max says, hey. Stop right there at 6th and S because if you come through here, like you're going to get shot the same way the sheriff did, which I tell Max to this day, I'm still pissed off at him because I could have made it up to that next tree row and been a lot closer. Um, lots of interesting lessons learned uh, through this whole thing. But, you know, then we set up there on the, the east side and we were worried about, you know, we knew we had the north side covered. We had the east side covered. And we could pretty much see south from the house because it was at that time, like, right, if you go out there now, well, maybe not now, but when there's corn there, you can't see the house from where we were. Right. But because there weren't any crops at that time, it was just perfectly flat and you could see for miles. So the only thing we didn't have covered was the river side of the residence on the west side. And on the west side, they had the wheat. And the wheat was about 18 inches high. And we, and we had no idea if, was he still in the house? Did he egress to the river? Because that was one thing we also knew is like this. He grew up here. Like this is literally his backyard. I mean, he knows his way around here. And where's he at? And that's what I was telling Max is Max had my binoculars. I said, hey, just look to the south because I don't want to flank us. The north is open, open area. We can see him out there. And you guys have the east and we have the west. So the south towards the river was his only way to go. And that's what I told Max on the radio as well was like, Max, listen. I got your east side covered 100%. Like, he is not going to move out of that house to you without me seeing it. End of story. I was like, but the thing I cannot see is your west and southwest of that residence. I'm like, that, I can't see it. So, like, you need to make sure that you're paying close attention to that. I said, but I promise you I've got that east side covered. You know, I, I the next thing I remember is Max saying on the radio that the sheriff, 
you know, you did some self-aid or Max did. I don't remember which. Correct me, but. I did the beginning of it, and then he, I made him check my head and everything. I didn't know if I had any, any things in, in my head, hit the, hit the car. I don't know. Um, I was feeling up there, but, of course, you know, you got your gear on, and you're trying to, you, you don't, you can't. He's looking around, and there was nothing other than the gunshot. And I had that, I felt a bump down there where the, where the gunshot was at, and that was actually the round in my pants. So it stayed there. I mean, the things you do you, 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 that you think you don't do, you do. When I parked my, got my car to the corner, I turned my wheels to the far right. Okay, as I got out, I used the engine block and the car, the vehicle front tire was already turned, and that's where I was. And it goes back to training. It just, it's automatic. We do it because we've done it over and over and over before. I had that round there, and I was like going, people ask me, they, why did you... I folded my pants on it. Now, that was evidence. I, I'm just thinking, I don't know. I, if I keep it, it's evidence. If he, if he gives up, you know, we could push it back to a gun, you know, so a weapon he fired from. Yeah, lots of moving parts. And and the, the, the part that I remember is definitively on the radio was Max saying, the sheriff's fine. He's still in the fight. Absolutely. And just having an overwhelming, like, fuck, yeah. All right, cool. Like we got this, like we, and, and the interesting thing that people like that we had, I had to learn in the Academy was we went from this active incident of chasing someone and moving quickly to basically now we have to really change what we're doing. So when I'm talking about the moving parts, you know, we're thinking about the evidence and the the legalities and stuff. And now we've moved to the potential for a barricade suspect. And when you have a barricade suspect in the house, that changes the game completely. At no this, longer no longer are we running and gunning. At this point, did you know that Thomas was still in the house? His dad was in there? Well, you want to answer that one or want me to answer that one? I don't. I wasn't. I was on my way so, to Wesley. So here, 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 here's, you would assume, okay, but we didn't know. Yeah. So when we were down that corner, okay, I told Max, as I would tell anybody, if you see David and he's, and he's looking at us and he's firing us, Fire at him, but make sure that it's David. I don't know if Tom is around at the residence. We don't know, but make sure you know who you're shooting at. And to be fair, we were spending quite a bit of time trying to find that out. Absolutely. And I remember being on the radio of like, hey, does anybody have his phone number? Does anybody have this person's phone number? That to where we could maybe establish like, oh, yeah, where you could call him and, oh, yeah, I'm at the grocery store where we were. We were spending quite a bit of time trying to figure that out and figure out who was in that residence, if anyone. But you make sure you identify your target before you do anything. Yep. So. So we move into basically the barricade subject. So uh, at which point you, where do you, when do you leave? When we were down that corner and everything kind of settled, I made a phone call to my wife. You know, in the military, we have a protocol. Okay. And when things happen, people are, it's, it's just boom, boom, boom. She knew her role and how a spouse and you get notified and everything like this. It's all new to us. And so she was, she's the commander down there at the Legion. And I called her after things settled down and I said, hey, I said, uh, she goes, I can't hear you. The wind's blowing. And it was windy that day. And uh, yeah, I remember four and a half miles. And I'm talking to her. I, I, had go, to put, I, go, I had to take that into account for my firing solution <laughs> at 800, 850 I, ta- I, was, I was trying to talk to her. And I said, hey, look, I go, I go. <laughs> I go, I've been shot. I'm okay. And she's like, what? I can't hear you. The, you know, this, the wind and everything. I got to go. And she hung up. 
I'm like, great. And she probably didn't want to hear what you had to say would be my guess. So then she, she <laughs> this is from her, her perspective. And she puts the phone back into her uh, apron. Apron she's wearing. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, goes about Because she's still her, at the Legion yes, on Hamburger Night, yep, right? Yeah, about her business. Then she kind of slows down. She stops. She thinks. She goes, hey, did I really hear what I really heard? I call her back. This time I took my phone. I put it in my grill in my car out of the wind. I said, hey, don't hang up. I go, I go, I've been shot. I go, this and that. I go, and she's like, where you at? I said, you can't come out here. I'm not telling you where I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not telling you where I'm at. I, she goes, she goes, I'm coming to get you. I said, no, you cannot. Like, I'm not even going to tell you where I'm at. I said, I'm okay. I go, I'm, I'm, I'm shot. I'm good. I'm in the fight. We're good. I got to go. I hung the phone up. Now, to hear that and on her end process that, thank goodness there was the former chief of police, Mary Kendrick, uh, out of Sterling, uh, that came to the Legion and grabbed my wife and says, we got to go. Now, I don't know what was said with Mary and her, but I think their first stop knowing was... Mary, knowing Mary, it was probably very curt and yeah. to the point. <laughs> I, I, maybe, maybe a few expletives. I think, see, at the time, I didn't even, I didn't even tell her... I didn't feel it was my right to tell her Chad was shot. I didn't tell her that because I didn't want her to get ramped up even more. But her first stop, I think, was at the truck in front of Casey's. And she's like, well, what's going on? And Mary said, well, Chad's been shot. She's like, what? Now, once Chad was shot, I was already, I think I was announced dead twice. <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of media misinformation there. Yes, I do there remember that. <laughs> and, having and, having been there, I remember course, reading some of that. Like, well, what the? I think it was my. I think it was my. From? I think it was my wife's uncle uh, at a called Wichita NWCH and corrected them. Said no, he's he's good and he's safe. But going back to your question, um, once we were down the corner, I did that. Did my phone call and everything. And I told Max, I said, "We're just gonna sit here and wait. We can't." We, you know, we're going to wait. There was really no way to safely egress from there. And, you know, the sun was behind us. Okay. So if you put your, you, you, you come up behind, the sun was setting, but the sun was enough to where it was, it was glassy on our end to look through the, through the glass of the house. Okay. We were probably approximately, I would say 250 ish yardage from the house. And someone was setting just enough to where it was going to cast a shadow of us. So and he, I'm sure that he had high power rifles with scopes. Okay, being backlit in a gunfight is probably the worst lighting you can have. And I told Max, I said, Max, and you know things you say sometimes this kind of makes sense, but in a in a situation like that, I said, man, Max, you ever play whack a mole? He goes, Yeah. <laughs> well, I said, I said, if you do peaks, do quick peaks. You know, don't keep up there too long because you might lose it. So you have a question you were going to ask? No, I was just thinking that. Um, you know, when it comes to that, you know, the things that we laugh about now or the things that we say is another one of our stress response mechanisms is we, we make light of things, even in stressful events of things we were making fun and it's kind of like, okay, that was funny. Anyway, now back to this. <laughs> like, <laughs> Exactly. You know, so we're sitting down the corner, we're sitting down the corner and waiting and waiting. So did you, did you egress with? How did, how did you get physically get away from your vehicles to the hospital? Like so what? that's what I'm getting at yeah. right now. I was thinking about egressing the wood line myself, but I felt, well, I've already been shot once. Don't want to make another another incident and get hit again, then put my deputies 
in another stressful situation. And I could be laying out there and now he, they have to come get me and, we're, and he's taking pop shots. We sat, we waited, we watched. We had you guys on the east side of the house. Figured he ain't going nowhere, hopefully. And uh, it was probably about 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden I hear sirens. And I'm like, okay, they're getting louder and they're getting louder. And I'm like looking down, I'm looking back to the, the north now off that current corner of Avenue S. And look back and all I see is car after car just coming hard and uh they pull up next they pull up right to us and get out of the car and they come over and i'll leave individuals names out that we make contact with because uh barton county you know and he goes he goes what's the situation i said well we have one in the house with, with rifles we don't know if his dad's there or not i said i'm shot everybody else is good he goes, okay, we got it. You got to go. I'm like, I'm not going. So from the time where you were shot, made first contact to now, how long do you think that would have been? 509 was you, right? Uh, five, Yeah, between 510 and 513 was when I got shot. Okay. And then about five, oh, man, I, want, I don't want to screw that up. I think about, about 20 minutes afterwards, and then 20 minutes, then we had about 20 minutes afterwards, we were down the corner. It got all settled down from the time he got shot. And then by the time Barton County and everybody got there, about twenty, about 22 minutes total time, probably. Yeah. But when they got there, and then they said, you, 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 you have to get out of here and get treated. We'll get you out of here. I said, I ain't going nowhere. And so after back and forth a little bit, <laughs> I, I was, I was going to lose. I lost that battle <laughs> because there was, there was probably about, 15, 20 cars there, and there was probably about another 25 guys there. Yeah, we got so plenty they, of guns in the and, fight. And time they, to get you taken care of. And they said, we got this. Were they all sheriff, or was there state? Was there highway patrol or any you of know, that there yet? You know, the only person, I saw Barton County. Yeah. There was other agencies there, but uh, I knew the individual that came up to me. He, he wasn't really in any type of law enforcement gear other than his vest and everything. He was in shorts and, I believe, uh, tennis shoes and uh just getting to Rice County to assist us, which there was, I think, 17 outside agencies to assist us that day, which I'm highly you know, honored that they came out there and did what they did. We had that mile section freaking surrounded. I think we could have literally put patrol vehicles nose to nose or nose to tail, nose to tail, nose to tail and surrounded that. I mean... There were so many people. So when they so, so many law enforcement so I, agencies and people coming. So when I left, when I left the area, they go, "This deputy will take you out." So I got in the car, I got into a charger, and uh, I got in the I got in the charger, and then I laid it down, laid the seat down. He goes, "You okay?" I said, "I'm fine, man. She's been shot once. Don't get shot again." <laughs> you know, and he takes me out. Get to the get to the ambulance. They wanted to help me get into the ambulance. I said, "I can get in the ambulance." I got in the ambulance. I remember. Greg Klein, director of EMS, he was cutting up my pant line, and he cut pretty dang. Whoa, hang on. He said, stop right there, Greg. Stop right there. You know? I go, I have evidence right there. And that was eventually given to uh, Sergeant Rick Tomer uh, at the hospital. Again, Misha Holiday was my EMS person in that ambulance, uh, to which she started the IV with me, to which I tore the IV out. There was blood everywhere. And I said, not cut my vest off. I was undoing it. That's what, that's what caught it out, you know, took the IV out. Mm. And uh, 
here I am. I'm pulling magazines out of my pockets and everything, hand to her guns and everything. She's, she's like, I go, is IV okay? She goes, oh, it's okay. I do better when we're on the road. And we were, we, we, we were moving pretty quick on the road. And she administered the IV going about 90. She did that. Yeah, I was talking to her. And I go, she started talking to me. And I go, I can't hear you. And I'm looking at the back of the ambulance. I go, I can't hear you. And my, then all of a sudden, everything started to close. The, the cave was getting darker and darker. And I see a little white dot. And she goes, you'll be okay. I'm, I'll bring you back. Here you go. Wham. Hit that fentanyl a little bit. And I was like, well, here I am again. <laughs> you know, fentanyl was our friend that day, right, Chad? It was. It was. <laughs> the good, you know, medical, but not, not the Yeah, I understood. So, yep. Well, and then, you know, one of the things that I wanted to point out as far as me was there's a lot learned that day from me when it came to like equipment and stuff like that. But also one thing I was really happy with was setting up on that east side there was no way for me to prone out in the grass like at your typical precision rifle marks when you think of them prone behind a scope and, you know, going to make this, you know, nat-ass shot. And I, there was nowhere for me to do that, period. I could not prone out. And so I was able to take what was called a, a game changer uh, bag that I used in competition shooting and was able to use something that I'd learned through that competitive rifle shooting and you know those little like plastic things they've got when they set up like a telephone service and mm -hmm. stuff yep. where they terminate all the wires and everything? Well, there was one of those at that intersection. Really? Yeah, which uh, was still there. Um, and so I put my game changer on top of it and was able to set my rifle on it. And, you know, and I'm a six foot four guy, but it was perfect for me to sit and be in a seated position and be right behind that gun. And I was absolutely rock solid. Granted, making a shot at 800 and... Like, I think it was like, ended up being like 850 yards, how far I was with a 308 would have been next to impossible to make a really good quality shot, which is also why I'm still mad at Max for not letting me get closer. Because um, <laughs> it, it would have been more like 400, which he was I could have. testing you. Yeah. Well, I could have done the 400 yard shot. The 800 is probably not the case. So, you, Chad, you get to the hospital first? Yes. Okay. And then what, what was that like when you show up? Well, once they get me loaded up on the. From the scene, we get in the ambulance, and we're, like I said, I had three paramedics and two techs working on me. Several IVs going. I'm just laying there, letting them do their thing. I'm not screaming. I'm letting them do what they have to to save my life. And I think that scared them. You know, in fact, I know I did, talking to them afterwards, because they're used to the agitation. They're yeah. used to the chaos. People freaking out. You know, and here I am just laying there, been shot four times, and just like another day at the office. So, a really stressful day at the office. A very stressful day at the office. But so we get to the hospital, and we, like I said, we roll up in there, and the medical staff, the, the nurses and doctors, wasn't told that I'd been shot. They were just told there was an officer-involved shooting, and the one that was shot is being brought to them. Like I said, when the nurse opened the door, and there I am, half naked, you know, what the fuck, Murphy? <laughs> they get me out, and they wheel me in, and, I mean, it's just like instantly I've had nurse i mean you couldn't put another body in that trauma trauma one room if you wanted to one of the nurses when my wife got there and when i say that they did a good job of locking that hospital down when my wife got there they weren't going to let her in so she was fixing on driving her van through the front door <laughs> <laughs> she, she was coming in you never told me this that's awesome so one of one of the nurses recognized her and said no that's his wife you got to let her in so she comes in and and like I said, she was a trooper through the whole thing. Once the initial shock was there, and then she had time to process it on the way because she was being driven two lines. 
I was in the hospital for 24 minutes for them to stabilize me and get me in route to Wesley. Uh, we chose to go by ground because it was faster, which at that time I didn't care because I was, like I said, fentanyl was my friend. I was feeling pretty good. <laughs> you know, and modesty went out the window about halfway through that because by the time my wife got up to me, they had already cut every stitch of clothing off of me to make sure I wouldn't hit somewhere else. So we got, they get me all the x-rays done. They, you know, like I said, I had three doctors working on me. As we're wheeling me out, my youngest son's standing out in, in the ER, not the waiting room, but right outside the trauma one room. And we wheel out and I stop him and in my whisper voice, I'm telling him, don't get shot, it hurts. <laughs> it does. <laughs> my youngest son and I have this awkward relationship to where our sense of humor is just just not the normal sense of humor <laughs> and so when he heard that he knew i was going to be okay yeah he knew that it's going to take a little bit but i'm going to be okay you know because i'm sitting there holding my one arm up because i can't physically keep it up i have to hold it up so on the way down to wesley i have one paramedic one driver and my wife in the ambulance so we went from five people in the back with me to one and my wife was doing his job because she wasn't she's like hey chad yeah babe just so she knows i was i wasn't dying she was doing it every 30 seconds (laughs) (laughs) so well especially with the fentanyl i'm sure you were laying there just like oh like kind of well and and, you know we talk about like the sheriff said you know everything went slow motion for me being in the er I'm hearing all that radio traffic. I'm not comprehending it, but I'm hearing it. And I know people are getting excited. You know, I'm thinking, okay. And they're like, turn that off, turn that off. I'm like, oh, no, leave it on. That's helping keeping me calm. Yeah. Because if I hear the, the commotion, the chaos going on the radio, then I know he's not here. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a uh, a stress reliever for me until Sarge gets there. And you were, when you say you know that he wasn't there, that David hadn't come to the hospital to right. basically finish right. what he started. Gotcha. Because like I said, I didn't think he'd shoot me. I figured he'd run from me or fist fight me and never thought he'd shoot me. And so uh, when you get to Wesley, they Sedgwick County had been notified you were coming. Yes. Um, of course, going down there, I mean, my wife was telling me that it was just a stream of cop cars heading to Rice County. Bearcats, cop cars. I mean, there was just a number of people. Uh, so we hit Sedgwick County, we get close to the hospital, and then we meet up with a half dozen patrol cars, and they just clear the highway. And we're running down the highway 90 mile an hour to get to Wesley. And then when we get to Wesley, they open up the back doors, and you don't see anything but cops. I mean, you don't see the Walgreens across the street. You don't see nothing. The Jimmy Johns, nothing. It's just cops. They get me out, and they wheel me in, and... And immediately, they latch on to my wife. They, they assign her a detective, and she's going to be with her 24-7 till all this is done. Uh, they take me into trauma. Of course, I can't take anybody else in there because it's trauma. And, you know, the trauma surgeon, he's like, man, you look good. You got good reflexes. We're going to take really good care of you. You're going to be okay. You know, I'm thinking, hell yeah, I like this guy. <laughs> Until he stands up and starts yelling that he needs more people and that this is a trauma one give me more people in here. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm the only trauma here. (laughs) (laughs) So am I dying or what? Um, Obviously not. Yeah. So 
backing up, I was conscious of the whole thing until they put me out to scan me. You know, I remember hitting the ground. I remember opening my eyes right away, looking across the street. I remember it all. So they do the scans. Of course, they have to intubate me, put me out, intubate me. So I've got now a tube in every orifice except for my butt. <laughs> <laughs> so when we get done with the, the scans, I'm laying there. My wife's on the phone. She's making phone calls. And, of course, a lot of family members are finding out through Facebook, other social media sites and whatnot. She tells me that she's on the phone, and here comes this blue marshmallow come be bopping around the corner. It was the sheriff. <laughs> They'd put him in paper blue scrubs, and he's on fentanyl, and he is dancing around, just been shot in the leg, and he's dancing around. So he wants to make sure I'm okay. And my wife's telling him, hey, he's, we got to slowly wake him up. Uh-huh. So he gets down there and he, you know, we're looking at buying at that time, you know, we're going to purchase a truck for the, for patrol. And he's telling me, he's, Hey, I need the specs for that truck. I didn't say a word. All I did was lift my hand up and flip him off. He'll <laughs> <laughs> be my, good. Hey, now that you're going to be okay, let's get back to work. Yeah. That, that, that was my left hand. Of course, I still couldn't move my right hand, but with my left hand, I it flipped him good. off. And he's like, yep, he's going to be fine. And he beeped on down the hall. <laughs> well, I think that. I don't want to take away from what, but I remember hearing this of, you know, that was what you were worried about. You were like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Where's Chad? Get me to Chad. My personal. F the rest of this. I don't care what your protocol is. I don't care. Get me to Chad. Yeah. <laughs> my personnel are my number one priority. I care more about them than I do myself. And that's what we all do. We lay our life down for our brothers and sisters. And I'd step in front to take a bullet for them. I know you do the same for me. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is, is that as, as a sheriff... Again, and I used I say that term very, very I can say professionally in a sense. You know, it's it's a label. It is a is a name. We're all LEOs. There's just assigned positions, okay. And uh, sometimes that those those labels can go away when we're still LEOs and we're still brothers and sisters in arms. Well, especially during traumatic Absolutely. events, like who gives a shit what your rank is? You know, <laughs> and, you know, and. and after I got after I left, I went to the, he was already gone. I went into the Lions Clinic, Lions Hospital. They opened the doors. That first person I see, it's Mark Johnston. He's like, "Where's all your gear?" It's right there, and he's gathering all gear. I mean, everybody in Rice County seems like they're a first responder. Everywhere you look in Rice County, every door you open, somebody's done some good in Rice County. Some things. We're, they're like Max Bryant. He's a, he's an LEO. He's a firefighter. He's an EMS. I'm Part-time like, Sterling PD. I'm in, in, <laughs> well. Exactly. And so everybody has a role, and they do all these amazing things. But when you know, when I was in that hospital, after Chad's gone, I roll in like you, like he said. They're all over the place. They're there to help us. And it was everybody was on call. Everybody was. It's all hands on deck. My wife was there, and I said, "Hey, do you bring me a pair of pants?" <laughs> she's like, yeah, I had time to stop at the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and Christy Darnauer, you know, I go, being shot with a high-powered rifle, I really had very limited bleeding. It, it cauterized a lot, but it was bleeding. I said, wrap that shit up and get me out there. Let's go. Take it. She goes, nope, you're going back. You're going to Wesley. I'm like, come on. I didn't want to st- stay there. I want to go. Those are my guys out there. This is our fight, too. But I, I definitely have that feeling a lot when it comes to to that kind of stuff of like when there's car chases and things like that and I'm off duty. I mean, you spent all this time 
training, preparing, equipping, and all. It's like it's it's that feeling of like put me in, coach. Like I'm ready, put me in. And that's that's the feeling that I have and had during multiple incidences right. through a career, not just this one. But. And, with, and with Chad and myself, with anybody, with any LEO out there that has family and kids, and and some of them may live at home, some may not live at home, you know, and your spouses, they forget about them sometimes. You know, how does this impact them? We know how it impacted us, you know, we got the scars to prove it, but we just push forward. But how, how, how are they pushing forward? Yeah. You know, especially, you know, I'll use Caleb as an example. You know, he, he sees his dad get shot, okay, and he's in the same line of work. Yep. Does that How does that affect him? Does it affect him? Well, not only that, but even your close fr- family Absolutely. and friends. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I know people that have gotten out of law enforcement because of it. I know people got out of EMS because of it. Yeah. That's something. So, like, when this all started, you guys, none of you were on duty, right? Or I was, were you on duty? I was heading home. Uh, okay. I actually had been working at the office. Okay. Um, taking care of some things there, and I was just actually just on my way home. wasn't planning on making well, a car stop. Kind of always on duty. Yeah. You know, and, but you know, the thing about it is that we see something, we we take care of business. I know, like, I don't know if it's like this in bigger cities. Maybe you guys can answer this, but like, when you go home, you're going home for the day for the most part. But a smaller town, you're pretty much on duty all the time, and you might have to leave that Thanksgiving or family barbecue. Have, or, have you not seen Chad check his phone about yeah, I mean, a, he's, dozen, he's a dozen times? Like, <laughs> like it, when his work phone's going off, he's making sure that it's not one of the deputies or yeah, a detention officer to, needing something. Yeah. You guys are always on duty 24-7. Correct. Especially in our agencies. If, if you lose one person, you've lost one-fifth to one-sixth of your department. Whereas if you're, say, Hutch, losing one person is not... I mean, when I say losing, I don't mean dying, but like no. as far as somebody not on shift, someone's so, sick. Yeah, yeah, somebody somebody goes down and out. I mean, it's 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 a big deal. You're changing a lot around. You're having to you know potentially have a lot of overtime hours. And typically, in Sterling, you guys have one patrol officer. Yeah, at a time. except for day shift. One day one, shift one, one guy. We lose one person. Okay, that's seventeen percent. Yeah, approximately sixteen and a half percent. And uh, whereas if you get like a bigger agency, you're talking probably more like one, one to two percent is what you're looking at there. So just to guide this back on after the scans and everything, they basically kind of find out that you're more or less okay, right? Pretty much. um, They're still having issues while I'm paralyzed. Trying to figure that out. They're still making in in your right arm in my right arm. Okay. Yeah. So Um, they're still figuring out how bad the carotid damage is. Because it could tear at any time. We already know the jugular is gone. They're concerned about my voice box or my speech. Uh, so, again, they said, you know, you're going to be in here for 30 days and then a year in inpatient rehab. And, nah, fuck that. <laughs> Ain't happening. So, four days later, I get released from the hospital. So, I get shot on a Monday and Friday morning I get released. And in between those days, you know, numerous friends, family, colleagues came up to visit the problem with, from the time I was shot to the time I had scans, I've got good memory. It was after at the hospital where they keep you drugged up to keep the pain down. My memory's fuzzy, so it's kind of hard, like, okay, who all came to see me? And there's times where I was alert. You know, the, the pain medication was pretty much gone, and I was waiting for my dose to come in. Push, <laughs> kept pushing that button, and it wasn't working yet because the time hadn't hit. Um but after four days of, of dealing with that and them saying, okay, there's nothing we can do for you now. You're going to have to, you know, we're going to send you send you home and we're going to set you up with outpatient rehab. So 
we get home and we have a caravan bringing us home, not knowing that this is going on. We start out with three or four cars. Uh, yeah, but between three and five cars, yeah. Yeah. So that's what's bringing my wife and I home. And they're, you know, my wife is, she's spot on with this stuff. So we get loaded up and we're coming home. And, of course, we've got a whole string of cars bringing us home. Uh, we pull into our front yard. You know, we get back to Sterling. We pull in our front yard. And the whole front yard's covered in people. I mean, the reception was just phenomenal. And people were telling me they were expecting me to get out, to get into a wheelchair, and they're going to have to pick me up to put me on our front porch because we have stairs going to our front porch. And they're all like, oh, my God, you got out and you walked up to your front porch. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't get shot in the leg. <laughs> I got shot in the shoulder and the arm. Well, that, that, was, that was the key for me as well. Because, again, since you were gone already, I had basically no idea about your condition. Because we, we kept asking, hey, what'd you hear? What'd you hear? And uh, nobody really had much information about either one of you. And so, you know, we're basic. we're even still in the dark a little bit on it. When you talked about what does it do to our families, which I know we'll get more into here in just a minute. But when I went home, for me, the way I personally deal with stress and stuff like that is I kind of shut off for just a little bit. And once I have a chance to kind of abstract those thoughts and make that glob of memories and, and all that stuff in my brain into, you know, a really crappy Play-Doh figurine that you can, you know, <laughs> recognize as something, then I'm ready to talk and I have no problem talking. But in that moment, and while I'm dealing with that, you know, leave me alone. And so I'm sure that that stuff, I, I it did come come out on my family and on my wife and on my children. Thankfully, you know, they were troopers through it as well. And I remember coming to the hospital to visit you. And my mental picture was you laying on a bed, intubated with all these machines around you. <laughs> and, you know, they're basically pumping all this stuff into you and all this other kind of stuff. And I walk in and him and his wife are chatting and he's got IV saline and that's it. Nothing else. Nothing. I mean, he's just sitting there like he just finished having like a gallbladder surgery is kind of what it was in the room. And from that very moment on, the stress had been relieved and it was just a complete like, like, okay, you know, you're going to be okay. And also I thought Sedgwick County, another cool thing they did was they posted a guard outside your room. And they like did. We, we had to, we had to tell that dude like who we were and why we were there and all that stuff, which was pretty cool. And, yeah, when I got there, I mean, that's the one thing that scared my wife the most was when you have the Sedgwick County Sheriff, the Sedgwick County Chaplain, and the Sedgwick County Undersheriff walking down the hall to the quiet room, because that's where they put the family at. You all automatically think something bad just happened. Bad thoughts. They're getting ready to come tell me my, my husband's dead. He died on the table. And that wasn't the case. It was, we're here for you. Whatever you need, here's my business card. Here's my personal cell. You call me whatever you need while you're here at Wichita. And then the detective that was assigned to my wife to, to stay with her, to get her, it didn't matter what she needed. Needed a cup of coffee, I'll be right back. She was kind of the buffer between the hospital staff and my wife, you know, to make sure that the information she was, was getting wasn't the most direct information. You know you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, she not, was able to kind of filter it. Not to sugarcoat it or anything like that, but not to just come in and say, hey, your husband just died. Yeah. You know, but luckily, I mean, great, gratefully, none of that had to happen. It was just more of the, hey, here's the updates. He's doing really well. 
Uh, we should you should be able to come see him here pretty quick. And my wife never left my side for four days. He definitely did a damn good job finding that one. Well, and for her putting up with you, but yeah, she she's puts up with a lot of shit. Good woman. <laughs> Actually, both your wives are good women for sure. Yeah. But so the hospital stay wasn't. I mean, they they came in, did their test to see where I was at, to see if what kind of uh, therapy I was going to need, and I was doing better than they expected. So that's <laughs> way what, better. If they thought you were going to be there for thirty days, yeah. And so the decision was made. I'd go to outpatient rehab. So you, so you get home, mm-hmm. and then. You know, you have your reception, and then, then the real work starts. Yeah. Did you start rehab like the next day? It was a week later. A week later. They actually gave me a chance to get settled. Yeah. Figure out what we needed, how things were going to work. That's when we come to the realization that my wife had to quit her job to stay home, take care of me, because I was like a two-year-old. I could tell I could tell her what hurt, but I couldn't do anything about it. So, how long, Sheriff? How long were you in the hospital? After I saw Chad, that's the last I've seen of a hospital. Uh, I was in the hospital. Um, they came in, the KBI came in and asked me a couple of questions, took a couple of pictures, appropriately, I guess. Asked some questions, and my my wife came in after that, again, with a posted guard and everything and, and such. And, again, you're not going to stop our wives from coming in the room. Just, that's just... If there's any two women in this world that I don't think that that would happen, that they could stop, it would be those two, for sure. Well, for I sure. That. And she came, I may be going to jail when we're done, but I'm getting into that room one way or another. <laughs> she, she came in and she, go, she, she goes, I don't know exactly what she said, but I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing the point of, you doing okay? I said, I'm, I'm fine. What's Chad's status? I don't care about me. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. He is up and he was, I heard ICU. He's doing all this stuff. He scans. I want to know the status of Chad. So he says the blue marshmallow soup, whatever you call it. Um, <laughs> I've never heard you say well, that. They're, so they're just awesome. they're like paper scrubs yeah. and, and such. And did did you have your ass covered? Was it was it tied in the back? I had their pants. They're no, oh, they're pants. Scrub pants. Yeah. Pa- oh, oh, paper scrub. I'm thinking not, I'm not thinking, a gown. They're talking oh, the gown. Okay, yeah. I'm thinking gown. Yeah. But they, no, they, they, I had the gown. <laughs> I was the one that literally showed my ass. Yeah, I say in the, in the tubes in every orifice, but your ass. Yes. Yeah, got you. And the thing about it is that you know, in the whole time I'm there, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I got my scrubs from. Them. I say I, I got to go see Chad. They give me the scrubs. I'm like going, where's my other sock at? So in the whole midst of this whole thing, I'm, I lose a sock. So now I'm wearing these paper, these damn paper shoes, little things, little, little pullovers on my feet. And I, I sound like a, like a two, amped, like, amped up on fentanyl. Yep, like a two year old in, in a onesie going, you all hear do the hallway and everything, you know? <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't get tackled by security thinking you know, he was some like homeless was, guy or something. And I was leading the pack. You could you could ask your dad, you could ask, <coughs> you could ask your mom. You know, they were there, and I was leading the pack. Let's go. Where's Chad? we got to go. Once I saw Chad, and then it was early morning, I think we got home probably between 2 and 3 and o'clock in the morning, and then I was back at the hospital again with Chad to make sure every day. We left the house, I think, about 7 or so and get back up to the hospital, and that's when I did my first interview uh, across the the hospital with my wife. That interview was very, very uh, emotional. Interview with news media? Yes. Okay. They wanted to do it. They found, I, they found out you were alive right then and there, right? I, I suppose, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I thought it was kind of early, though. Here I am still trying to gather my thoughts. This whole thing that just went on, this whole tragic incident that took place, did the best I could with the interview. I broke down. That's normal, I think, I guess. 
especially when you have a friend, a colleague, a friend that just got shot and you're concerned for them. Like I said, I'm not concerned for myself. I, I don't know if that sounds selfish or unselfish. I, I don't know, but it just, it's how I am. Did, did you have like physical therapy that was assigned to you or anything or? Cause I remember you have, were having some issues with the wound, like healing and stuff. Right. I, uh, I didn't go to physical therapy until later on. I figured it'd be a, a good thing for me to do. And I did a lot of uh, stuff at the Lions Clinic and they were wonderful. We did a lot of water stuff, a lot of stretching. I did have uh, some massages on there to break up the scar tissue and everything from there. There was like, we consider that a tunnel mm-hmm. where the bullet goes through and it creates that, uh, Oh, indentation in your leg, and you just work it out. And I still have a little one, but it's not as bad as it was, and it doesn't you know around the whole area. Everything's healed up pretty dang good. So everybody always thinks about, you know, when you get shot, and it's like this traumatic event, which it is, and it's painful, and all that other good stuff. But I think that your story about physical therapy and the roller coaster that it is, because it seems to me like when it's when it's fresh, kind of like nine eleven when it was fresh and everybody was paying attention to it. Well, it's, it's one of those things where when you kind of move, everybody went back to life. I mean, you still had people supporting you and, and, you know, the community came out and did amazing things. I mean, it was phenomenal to see the support. Absolutely. Nobody really, I guess, truly knows what you dealt with through your physical therapy and some of the things you were even told. So, well, some of the things, one thing I did learn was, you know, my pride that got in the way a lot. I should ask for more help during my therapy from from friends and family, but I didn't, you know, that was, this is my home. This is my family. I'm the one that takes care of them. And that, and that got in the way a little bit. The, the shooting itself, the pain was gone pretty quick. I mean, I know that kind of sounds weird, but the only shot that hurt was the very first shot. And then after that, I felt the impact, but I never didn't have pain go along with it. Just was, I know it was hard to breathe with two broken ribs and, I know the pain afterwards rolling over was there, but during the shooting itself, I didn't only felt the first shot and then I felt the impact of the others. But as far as the mental, mental side of it, talking about the roller coaster. Yeah, that was, that was after, that was after getting home and actually going to therapy, seeing specialists to find out what my options are, you know, to coming back to work and whatnot. Cause that was my end game was my goal was to come back to work. And you had set a goal of it was going to be a year or less, yes. if I remember correctly. It was going to be before the, the anniversary date of the <coughs> Right. So I worked my ass off to get there. And, yeah, it was a roller coaster up and down. I mean, we had we had our good days. We had our bad days. Uh, we had setbacks. I remember sitting on your porch and you telling me that they said you'll never be a cop again and just crying on your porch. That was a, uh, a specialist told me that. I was able to lift my arm up about six inches. At that time, and I had a specialist tell me that's all I'd get, and no more. You know, I'm at at the limit of what my recovery is going to be, and that I would never be a cop again. That was a that was a gut punch. I think that's the worst I've ever been in my entire life, as far as uh, my mental state went. You know, and it took my wife to find out, tell me, quit your pity party. You have a family, you have us. I said, and if this is what it's going to be, then I'm packing my shit and I'm leaving. You know, I'm not living this way. I'm not seeing you depressed every day. You can do something about this. It's not like your your life was taken from you. So, I mean, it was a hard wake-up call for me because uh, that's the lowest I've ever been. I mean, so after that, we went to another, another specialist the following Monday and a 20-minute observation. He sits down in his chair and he tells me straight up, I'll fix you. 
It's going to take a little bit, but I'll fix you. And my wife's like, is he going to be a cop again? Well, that's going to be on him. I said, I can't choose his career. That's on him. What's he going to do after after I fix him? Outstanding. You know, because I told the specialist before, the one that said I'd never be a cop again. I said, when I get healed up, I'm coming back here. I'm going to find you. I'm going to bitch slap you with my bad arm. <laughs> <laughs> so. Did you do it? I showed back up. <laughs> when they released me from, when my my final specialist said, you're done. There's nothing else we can do for you. No more therapy. You are good to go. And he said, no restrictions and limitations. I can go back to work full time as a as a as an officer. We left there, stopped by th- therapy, told them we had to cancel our appointments because they wouldn't work on, wasn't paying for anymore since they gave me the clean bill of health. And then we went back to that specialist and I walked in and said, I need to see Dr. So-and-so. And they probably said, what for? And they're like, um, I said, just tell him who's here and tell him he'll know what he, he'll know what it's about. So it took him a little way because they've got a glass p- petition there. He opened it up and he's looking at me like, oh. <laughs> I said, you and I need to have a talk. So he's like, um... I said, no, seriously, we need to have a talk. I want to thank you. And so he came out, and I actually shook his hand. I said, you're the one that gave me that extra oomph after my wife told me to get off my pity party, and you're the one that made me work harder. Just so I could come here and basically show you that I did it. And he's like, I'm glad you did. You know, I'm glad you proved me wrong. And I had a friend of mine tell me, you know, what are doctors? You know, what do they do? They practice. None of them are perfect. So it's all it's all upon you and how, how you're going to recover. You know, if you give up, then that's what you're going to get. But if you keep fighting, you're going to recover. So how did how did the whole incident, I guess, change your perspective on life? It changed a lot. I used to put my job ahead of everything. I think there are a lot of law enforcement officers that can align with that. Yeah, and I think so too. It made me realize how much I missed with my kids growing up. Uh, it made me realize how much, how much I missed with my family. I made a promise to my wife that uh, if she would agree for me to go back to work as a cop, I would limit my hours. I wouldn't put in the the 60 to 100 hours a week again. I'd limit my hours. And I told her, but there'll be some weeks that, you know, that I can't help. And she agreed. She knew that. But I thought I'd spend more time at home. Did you have times where you were where you were questioning yourself of like, do I even want to do this anymore? That's kind of a trick question. I kicked myself in the ass for not taking a medical retirement when they offered it. Because after being home for 10 months and at the end, you know, I was getting better. Ten months and two days. Yeah. Ten months and and two days. I was getting better at the end. I was doing more at home. And I realized, oh, I kind of like being off. You know, I like getting this shit done. And then going back to work and then realizing, oh, I tell people it was like a bad vacation. (laughs) It was a bad ten month and two day long vacation. (laughs) Yeah. Because I came back, it was the same shit, different day. Yeah. You know, so I mean. Some things were different, weren't they? A little bit. No, no, no. People, the, the, the same criminal elements was the same <laughs> oh, shitheads out there. That way, yes. So, yes. but as far as me coming back to work, that was a goal of mine that I had to beat. You know, because I'm still working on that goal. You know, I had an officer tell me one time as he came to visit me in my house as I'm recovering, he says, "I don't want you taking offense to this, but I don't want I don't know if I want you to back me up." And I said, "Well, I have to agree with that." If I was in your shoes, I don't know if I'd want me to back me up because I don't know what's going to happen. And that's still a fear of mine because that's still, is that going to kick in? Because I still haven't figured out what my triggers are. So is that going to kick in on one of these call outs that I go to? Am I going to lock up and am I going to hesitate? Am I going to cause some, somebody else to get hurt? And I struggle with that every day. But every morning I, when I go to work, I have to tell myself, 
This is what you chose to do. You're not going to let anybody else get hurt. And I don't know who that was, but and you don't have to say, but what I'm what I want to get at is is that that was likely a hard conversation. It was maybe in a hard realization, which I'm sure you had plenty of hard conversations. And I know there have been several times that you've looked at me and told me I'm a dumbass, and I've looked at you and told you you're a dumbass. And uh, you know, but that's that's just the thing of it's different. I guess it's different for us in the sense of, I mean, I, I haven't been shot, so I'm not going to c- claim like I know what that's like. But in the sense of being together through those instances, that it's it's kind of that's how it is. Like yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you how it is because yeah. I'm going home to my family at the end of the day and. We're going to have these hard conversations. And well, a lot changed for us tactically throughout the county as a result as well. Well, the thing is that I'm that type of person. I'm not one to sugarcoat anything. That's for damn sure. You know, I'm going to tell you, if you're being a dumb shit, I'm going to tell you you're being a dumb shit. For sure. You know, nothing d- wrong with that at all. <laughs> and it doesn't matter who you are. Mm-hmm. And I actually like that because at least you know where you stand. There's and, no there's no sugarcoat and there's no BS. But. I'm also willing to receive that as well. And yep. this officer that came and talked to me about it, he had every right to have that concern, you know, and, and I respect him for that. And so that was something for me to work on. So that's why every morning when I go to work, I have to tell myself, I, I think about who's working that day. These people depend on me. If there's a call out, these people depend on me. Put me in coach. Like we were talking earlier. You know, so, so I have to mentally prepare myself to make sure that I don't have that mental breakdown, you know, during the same scenarios, you know, we've been to a couple of gun calls. I think the hardest one was 18 months later, we had another incident in Rice County. Yeah. Hopefully Um, we'll have him on when court and everything like that's done. Cause that one's a whole different animal. It is. And the thing is, is that, you know, like I've told people, my experience is different than the sheriff's experience and it's different than this other person's experience is mine worse than his or is his worse than mine? No, it's even though I suffered four gunshot wounds, it was still traumatic. Just the sheriff got one. It was still traumatic, you know, cause you got to think about the whole, the whole gamut of the whole thing. You know, here I am laying in a bed, not knowing what's going on. Cause I didn't realize the sheriff's been shot till, uh, I was already home. Oh, wow. You know, I didn't see him. The The blue marshmallow thing didn't give you an indication? I wasn't. That's what the wife told me. Oh. I was still out of it. Okay. So I had no idea he'd been shot. Fentanyl. Yeah. <laughs> fentanyl. That's all I got to say is fentanyl. But I had no idea he'd been shot. And it took me a while to comprehend that he took around. Not, not t- trying to take away from his shooting. But for me, not knowing that right then and there, because like I said, I remember everything right in front of me. I don't remember anything off of the sides. So without, you know, since it wasn't, he wasn't right in my face sitting next to me with a gunshot wound to his leg, I had no idea. You know, because I was still trying to comprehend what the doctors were saying, what 30 people were telling me at one time. You need to calm down. Bitch, I am calm. <laughs> You're the one running around. I'm the one laying here chill. You know, and so after the fact, I had to go find that person because it's very a person that I respect very highly because she is my family doctor. <laughs> and I had to apologize to her for for that verbiage that I used towards her because she was telling me to calm down. And she's like, no, I understand. 
you, I think you had it coming for that. No. But, but the interesting thing is there wasn't that much bass in his voice when he said it. No, no, no. no there was, it was like, bitch, I am gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and also, real quick, while it's, it's on my mind, one thing I want to get at is even though if, if there's somebody that's listening to this that was a part of EMS or fire that day, I just want to take a second, even just from my perspective, just to say thank you and like how you handled things. And also, you know, fire, when you guys blocked those roads around us so that nobody could get in, you know, Chad talks about having the feeling when that was a who feeling for me, because we're always trained not to let anybody behind us. Like we have no locust of control behind us. Nobody gets behind us. And so with those roads blocked, I knew nobody was coming in behind me. Those, those fire department people were going to protect me. Nobody was getting past them without letting me know first. And I was able to do my job more effectively and focus on the task at hand because of just everybody coming together and doing what they do. And I know that we give firefighters crap. That's just kind of what we do as cops and, and, and all around through the emergency services. I mean, we just give each other shit the same way the military gives each branch, gives each other shit. But from my perspective, I just wanted to, you know, say thanks to them and, and everybody that came out to help. Well, that's one thing I will say is that that we, all entities of first responders in Rice County, did a, a phenomenal job. Absolutely. You know, EMS couldn't ask for a better service. I mean, top notch. They, I mean, they were they did everything within their power to treat me. On the way to the hospital, you know, I keep hearing people make comments about our, our local hospital being a Band-Aid station. They're awesome. I said, well, you might call them a Band-Aid station, but they stabilized me in 24 minutes where I came in with three paramedics and two techs, and I left with one paramedic and a driver and my wife, and they transported me to Wesley. So, no, they're not just a Band-Aid station. They're a phenomenal hospital, and the staffing they have there couldn't ask for better better nurses and better doctors. Just like with our EMS, you know, people give our EMS a, a, a ration of crap too, and it's it's not that when 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 it's time to get serious and try to get the shit done, they step up on our game. Uh, firefighters, even though you know they there was no fire to put out, but like you said, they're blocking roads. They're making sure this that everybody else stays safe while we're doing our while you guys are doing your job during that incident. Well, when you put a tens of thousands of pounds vehicle across the road, yeah, nothing's going nothing's through. going through that. No. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe maybe a, a vehicle could go around it, but on the flip side, and that was before we had 800 um, when Absolutely. we were uh, and that's another uh, 800 is a radio frequency. We were still on VHF at that time, and that's that's something I guess I forgot to mention was Remember how around the Raymond area, we always had issues with radio coverage? Right. Uh, we were on Ops 1, and I don't know why, and that's a radio channel that we had, and we still have, was Ops 1 for Operations Number 1. They'd assigned a channel. And my portable was sitting, I'd taken my vest off at this point to get more comfortable behind the gun because I was thinking to myself, if he can hit me from 800 yards with whatever he's got, my vest isn't making a difference. Right. So I just took the damn thing off to get comfortable <laughs> behind the gun. So it was sitting over next to me, and I had the radio mic clipped to my shirt so that I could wrap up in the gun and look down the gun but still talk on the radio without having to move. Right. And so it was like God himself was pulling the radio transmissions from my 5-watt or Well, actually, it was like 2.5 watts at that point because they'd, like, narrow-banded it or whatever. Right. Yep, they were narrow. And had literally, like, carried the radio signal to the tower because Max and I were talking back and forth like we were 
connected by some unknown cable, which any other day would not have worked that way with those radios, <laughs> period. End of story. And thankfully now with 800 megahertz radios, we don't have that much of an issue. Like nope. there are still some dead places, which some. no, no, no system's perfect, but it's significantly better than VHF. Yes. A hell of an improvement. So, um, so you spend 10 months and two days and then come back to work. Yep. And then what was that like? It was different. You know, here I was gearing up to go back to work. You know, I had my therapist working me, you know, doing everything that our local physical that we had to do when we get hired on the sheriff's office, what we call a work fit. I told them everything that we had to do. So they were pushing me to do that. Of course, you know, I had several therapists working on me, trying to get me back to work within that year. But to go on the radio and call out that I'm I'm 10-8, meaning I'm in service. That's a feeling that I'll never forget. Did the radio light up after that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I should have just said, okay, just set the radio down. I'll go back inside and come back out 15 minutes later. (laughs) But it was just, you know, driving down, leaving and going, you know, going to work. You know, it was kind of then driving by the scene. And I'm I'm really glad that I stopped there first when I came, came back from Wesley and got over that hurdle. You know, got past that hurdle. I did that night. I went there that night. Yeah. Well, I had to. I took a look around. I couldn't do it that night. Well, they, uh, no, they I'm wouldn't just... even. They wouldn't even let me outside to have a cigarette. So I don't think they're <laughs> going to let me go to the scene. Which, by the way, his fifty dollars is what bought our UPS battery backup because I bet him fifty dollars that he wouldn't stop smoking when he said he would. So. And people are still alive today because I still smoke. <laughs> there you go. But, um, you know, so the radio lights up and it's just people basically saying kind of like, welcome back. You know, they're glad to hear you on the radio. Glad to hear, you know, glad you're back. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice. But it was like that when I got back into county from Wesley as well, too, because when I got that recording as well, um, them holding the mic up to the for me to, to communicate because we came back in a patrol car that was caged. So my wife and I are sitting back in the cage. The cage, the inmate area. <laughs> so they just held the mic up, and I told them I was 10-8 back in the county, or back in the county. Which is something we commonly do on the radio whenever we leave the county for training or to take something to the KBI or whatever. So it's kind of it was you know, a symbolic thing of, like, I'm back. Yep. Yep, I'm here. I'm back home. So long uh, long journey to, to where we're at now, and it's just it's just interesting to see, and I hope it gives a little bit of perspective to – some people that maybe don't understand why we do some of the things we do or kind of just some of the mental journeys and the mental hurdles. Because for me personally, I feel with my job is it's not a paycheck. It's not just a thing that I do. It's not just something that pays the bills for me. It's, I literally want to be the person that takes the bullet for you so that you don't have to. And that's not me saying I want to die or I have some sort of a complex or I, I, I can't explain why I have that feeling. It's just uh, I feel it to my core, to my bones, just of if if something bad's going to happen, I want to be the person there to handle it so that you don't have to. Right. Well, the thing is, is that what I need to say is that, you know, during my recovery, we received numerous letters, cards, messages, you know, from coast to coast. All over. And I just couldn't, you know, because I'm a right-handed guy, I couldn't sit there and and write out a thank you to everybody because I just couldn't utilize my arm. So I, I thought, well, I'll wait until I get used to my arm and I'll be able to do that. 
Mm-mm. So, you know, to tell everybody that did support me, whether it be emotionally, spiritually, or financially through the, my, during my recovery, you know, people don't realize how much I appreciate that and, you know, how much that helped me process the fact that I needed to come back. You know, my, my therapist, I call him the spawn of Satan down in, <laughs> at Wesley, at Wesley Rehab. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have come back as soon as I did either. You know, because they pushed me. They made sure, you know, of course, my wife went to every therapy session. And every time I cheated, she knocked me out. <laughs> you know, he cheated. So then I have to do 10 more of them. What was the one deal? You're, you're picking up the blocks or you're moving them? Or a something? ball. I had to pick a ball up with my bad arm and play, and lift it over a bar and set it down in a, in a bucket on the other side. So I'm doing this, you know. It's hurting because we're about oh, six months into it. And my therapist turned her back to me to do something else. And I just go to the bar and put two box, <laughs> two, uh, two balls in a box. And my wife's like, he's cheating. <laughs> so I'm like, Seriously, woman? <laughs> you ain't cheating, you ain't winning. She, she cared, man. Yeah, yeah, she cared. There you go. She just liked to see me suffer. Um, <laughs> but again, it, it was, it's like those type people that, you know, because after, you know, when I went in and had to cancel my appointments, they told me at that time that my goal was doable, just wasn't realistic. They didn't think they can get me back to work in, ten, in a year. They're used to giving people a quality of life not getting them back to work. So, and they deal with a lot of gunshots down there, but they don't deal with people who want to go back to doing this, to doing this. So it was, it was a challenge for them as well. And, and they stepped up to the challenge and they outdid themselves. You know, there's just a lot of people I'd like to thank out there. And, you know, even my work comp people, you know, they did a phenomenal job of taking care of me. Well, kind of, kind of hard to argue with you with it. You're, you're faking an injury or something when you got four bullet holes in it or six six total holes before yeah. four gunshot wounds true <laughs> true but anything i asked for you know they they did what they could to help out again it's the regulations that are set in stone that we have to change uh for our first responders that's because that's the number one problem i had in my recovery was the stress of how am i going to pay my bills because like i said my wife had to quit her job to take care of me Cause like a two-year-old, I couldn't bathe by myself. I couldn't eat by myself. I couldn't even use the bathroom by myself. You know, I had to have my wife there to to assist me with just daily living chores. We lost a full income, plus a third of my income, when I got shot during my recovery. KSA, the Kansas Sheriff Association, had their meeting down at the hotel that we were staying at, and I know a lot of sheriffs. I know a lot of people that attended this, and we had a little group. And we were sitting there talking about it realistically financially not emotionally but financially been better off i would have died alongside the road my wife my wife would have been we wouldn't have been put in a hardship that we were put in yeah you'd had money pouring in from everywhere all kinds uh, of different foundations and stuff but again that's that's the financial part of it my wife's very happy that that didn't happen um and we're working through it i mean we're, we're trying to make changes you know we're trying to correct that problem to where when when first responders do get hurt they have someone they can turn to for the financial hardships right and it's not such a stress for them because you take away that one stress then you're going to recover that much faster Mm. you know and you're going to get off of that that work comp train because you're recovering that much faster me i had a goal in my mind i knew what i wanted to do i didn't want to sit on work comp 
So, and I, I achieved that goal. And when the doc says, yep, you're done. So, like I said, there's, there's some there's some things. we I learned that there's some things that are broken with all this. Yeah. And it just takes time to get fixed. you have any other final thoughts there or anything that came to mind for you, Sheriff, as far as through your process or anything else you want to say? I think my, pro- I think my process was basically work. Um, without Chad, I was double-tasked. Uh, still thinking about Chad. I was busy at the shop. We, we discussed this about, I don't know, about two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. We discussed this, you know, and, and you know, people deal with the stressors and, 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 and the incident in different ways. And I think my way of, of dealing with it was working. And I worked through it. Um, Chad would make, you know, we, I'd go over and see him and he'd make, and he'd go, hey, man, I, I lift my arm right here. Yeah, I, I, remember, right I remember him doing that. It's, hey, it's, check out what I can do. Check what I can do. You know, exactly. You know, it's, I told him, I said, every little improvement is an improvement. It doesn't matter if it's an inch, half inch, quarter inch. It doesn't matter. You're improving. I kept him updated on everything we did at the, at the sheriff's office. Uh, that way he kept in, I kept him engaged, kept his mind thinking of what work is about. Everything I got, cases I got, whatever, I'll pushing it to him. Hey, this is what we got going on. This is what we got going on. That way, he's not really thinking too much about what what went on. He's thinking about work, and I got to get back to work. So I'm trying to get him to go and well, also physical maybe, therapy. Like I haven't forgot about you. Absolutely like you're not. not. You're not damaged goods. You're not right. And, you know. I, and I wasn't blindsided when I came back. Yeah. Like he, you said, the sheriff a, did a wonderful job. He contacted me almost daily. One check on me, see how I was doing. Two fill me in what was going on at the office. That was one of, besides my wife, that was one of my biggest supporters was the sheriff and his wife. That's, that's just the thing. You know, you know, he's back, you know, and we, we made it through it. I'm grumpier. Well, yeah, kind of, maybe. Um, <laughs> that comes with we, age, we've, right? Yeah. We, we've, we've made some, we've made some adjustments. You, you read all over the place, and I agree with Nick. As law enforcement officers, we change tactics as they change tactics. As the bad guy changes, we change along with it. We gotta, be, we have to be one step in front of them all the time. It's a chess match game going back and forth, and we, you see it every day in the news. Just a simple serving process, simple, simple process paperwork. You know, is is the, pretty much as dangerous as. Well, yeah, in, you're gi- you're giving people bad news. That's essentially what civil process is. Exactly. You know, so <laughs> and who knows what they've dealt with throughout the course of that day. Yeah. And now you're serving them divorce papers, or yep. you're getting sued for this, or exactly. So you know, it, it, every situation, they always say, "Oh, it's just a routine." It's it's not. There's no there's no one that's worse than the other. We gotta take it as they're trying to shoot us every time we get somewhere. Well, and that's why and, and, and that's a bad th- you know that's a bad thought though really if you think about it law enforcement back in the day was you know well respected you know and see a person in uniform that's the person you need to go to and you need help as a kid and now it's are we the bad guy that's how we're that's how the framework is sometimes right now I think we're the bad guy in in the mainstream media. Right, but from what I saw with how our communities came out to support, support. us, from what you our, guys had, our community that, that that's is, not true. Our community is number one. Our Rice County, oh boy, I tell you what, there's nothing like it. You well, know, well, nothing and the like and the streets it. just being lined with people. I mean, between you and Corey and uh, the firefighter that got hurt, of just seeing the community like just coming out and standing on the side of the road. I mean, people wouldn't do that if they didn't like us or didn't care. Exactly, and the thing is that I always joke about this. 
I've had more convicts on my front porch during that 10, 10 month recovery <laughs> than I had my entire career. You know, I've had them come up to me, shake my hand, tell me, I can't wait till you come back to work. I know you're going to come back to work. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm dirty. And when you come back to work, I hope it's you're the one that arrests me. And I'm like, okay, well, I haven't seen him yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, but there's, there's a lot of that mutual respect there. It um, is. I mean, it's just, I think that sometimes some law enforcement officers can sometimes get that us versus them mentality. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're all humans. We all pump, pump blood through our veins. And so, I mean, if, in, unless of course, you know, you're pointing a gun at me or trying to hurt me or someone else or whatever, you're going to get, you know, the respect for me that you deserve. Exactly. I don't care whether you're using drugs or what, what, what the crime is. Uh, you're, you're, you're going to get the de- basic decent human respect that, that everybody deserves through that process. I know that there were a few things that, uh, like even some questions that you had, like specifically outside of the shooting that you wanted to ask, like what their thoughts and stuff were on some things. Just, well, like we already covered a little bit, like the life lessons that you guys learn, this and that moving forward. And, um, don't take anything for granted. I was, yeah. was going to say, don't take nothing for granted. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Same tomorrow, tomorrow is not promised. Yep, I would. I agree with that. You know, you got to tell your loved ones that you love them. Each and every day, you have a chance. Because you never know, once you leave that home, that could be your number. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't wake up that Monday morning on April 29th thinking, you know, today things like, I think today's a good day to get shot. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why it's important that when the sheriff was mentioning that, like, nothing's routine. If you were to guess, how many traffic stops up to that point do you think you'd made? Just throw a number out there. God. Thousands. Yeah. I mean, probably in the thousands, right? Yeah. And you didn't get shot on any of them. Nope. Until that one. Until that one. Had you been shot at before? No. No. So that's why, you, you know, for those... For the those, military. Yeah. For those that are listening... That's why when, when there are perceived threats or there are things that we think of that we handle that decisively, you know, we may sound like we're being an asshole or we're, we're overbearing or whatever, but we're, these are the reasons why we're, we're trying to handle the situation before it snowballs into something bigger. Right. And before that's why we don't treat things routine. You know, the, the alarm at dollar general goes off all the damn time. But I never show up to Dollar General and just park in front of the building with my light shining in the front and all, you know, I, I still approach it with sound tactics the way I'm supposed to, the way I've been trained. Well, the one time and handle you pull it. up there. The one time. You're exactly right. The one time you don't, you let your guard down, guess yep. what happens? That's what yep. happens. Yep. Yeah. And so that, I think that's the, the biggest takeaway for me because, like I said, we changed a lot tactically. It used to be, I remember, it's kind of like an unwritten rule i'd never really seen it in policy or anything like that but if lions had a call that involved a weapon it was kind of like sit at the city limits and wait to be called to go over there well that shit went out the door uh, i like and i think it was it wasn't really a, any type of a policy decision as far as we never had our bosses tell us like go over there and do that it was like we we as officers just decided f that like if, if you want to get mad at me or you want to write me up or whatever, worth it. I'm going over there anyway. And we just go. Right. We just respond to help each other now, no matter where we're at. I mean, there have been times that Chad has been out on a call and the sheriff have been out on calls that just show up. You know, you may not need me, but here I am just in case. Ask for forgiveness and ask for permission. <laughs> yeah, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is permission. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we, uh, we, when we show up to those calls like that, you know, again, you, you may not need me, but I'm here. And that's the common misconception that people have is when, when you watch a cop TV show 
and they respond to the murder scene, you always see like five, 10, 15 cops there. Right. Well, we we don't even, yeah, we, <laughs> I mean, at, at any given time during a normal rotation of officers, a normal shift coverage, you got three lions, Sterling and SO three. And that is what you have for what? 700 square miles. Mm-hmm. Is that what we got? Yeah. Three, three people for 700 square miles. Some of those square miles are not easy to uh, get over. <laughs> no. Well, and that also can even change some of our tactics as far as we handle situations where, like, if something does happen, like I may, like the sheriff was talking about, he was waiting for backup before he went to David's house. There are times that, yeah, I'm going to sit back because I'm going to wait. There's no current loss of life. And I'm going to, but there are other times that, you, you know, a, an active killer incident where at a school or something like that, don't have the luxury, not waiting, yep. going in, you know, if hopefully this pans out the way it's supposed to tactically, that is not sound. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go in this alone, <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the average is what every 10 seconds, somebody's dying inside of that building. So it's like, gotta go now. We're coming up on like two hours, 11 minutes. You believe that? Really? Yeah. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Murphy's like, this is more talking than I've done I in a sat long here, time. I sat here and listened. All right. He's long-winded. Well, that's been me. I've been <laughs> taking all this information in like a fire hose, you know. Like, I don't know what, I, I mean, your procedures, anything like that. So I'm just trying to figure well, it out. That's, that's how I felt when we were talking to your mom and dad. About soil of just Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, that was just the thing. Like, I, it was, wasn't something I knew about. And it yeah. was just fantastic to sit down and have those conversations. You know, one thing, I, real quick, mm-hmm. you know, real quick, you know, you talked about the difference. You said, is it any worse? His should you any worse than this and that? There's effects, I think, uh, to a point, uh, you know, is a difference if you're standing in front of me, right? And I punch you in the face. You know I'm going to punch you, okay? It's probably going to hurt more if you didn't know it was coming. So for Murphy to look down a barrel of a gun, right? And for me to get shot, we both got shot. We both agree with that one. Both life-threatening to a, to a potential. If it had hit me somewhere else in the lake, I could have been bleeding out. Yes, they definitely could have very much severed an artery. So the thing about it is that he said pain, right? He knew. He's, he saw the barrel. Oh, my goodness, goodness gracious, here it comes. And he, and he got shot. He sees the muzzle flash. Okay, I didn't see it. I heard it, and I was waiting for impact. Kind of a kind of a different scenario. It's kind of like a sniper. You don't know where that shot's coming from. You just take the guy out. He didn't know it was coming. Yeah, probably never felt it. Well, and you were also talked about how it was like, oh, wait, oh crap, I just got shot. Where for him it was definitely this, oh shit, I just got shot. <laughs> well, yeah, my leg went towards my right, and it flung it across the the seat a little bit, and I was like, damn, you know. But he was looking right down the barrel, so he knew it was coming. Yeah, I think I said fuck. <laughs> I can't. I can't comment because I wasn't there. Sorry, man. But. Probably about the only chance, the only thing you could say before that, that was about the only thing I could say because yeah. it was just it happened that fast. Anybody listening to this podcast, I mean, if you want to go back and look at some of the stuff I went through as far as my recovery part, uh, if you Google my name, it's going to bring up my wife's Facebook. She's got all that open to to public. None of it's private. It's all open, uh, so people can go through and and start to finish uh, some of the emotional roller coasters that she went through as well. She put out there because um, there's a lot of nights she's laid awake watching me sleep because I couldn't sleep in a bed, you know, cause I had to sleep in a chair and 
So there's a lot of nights she stayed laid awake watching me sleep, make sure that I wasn't going to uh, hurt myself anymore than I was. I mean, so, and then we also do, I do a, uh, a lecture talking about the aftermath, you know, some of the, it goes more in depth on the mental side and there's a lot more to it than, than what we've discussed here tonight. I know a lot of people say like with sports injuries, that kind of thing, the physical thing is one thing, but then getting back out there mentally and fixing your mental health afterwards is a whole nother animal. Right. So that segues into, you were talking about how it affected our families, Sheriff. And so absolutely, what, what were some of the, those changes, I guess, that you saw in your family or your wife and stuff like that, or what were they, they dealing with and navigating it? My wife and I, we were both military, former military. We retired from the military. She did 25 years in the military. I did 22. A lot of my training I went through, I think, helped me survive that night, kept me in the fight. My wife and I, we have that, that, that military thinking. I, this the military <coughs> itself, how, how, it, how, how, we, how we ingrain in ourselves how to get by, get through, fight, fight through our, I wouldn't say troubles, your thoughts. Um, Murphy talked about our first traffic stop. You know, get back get, get back on my horse. You know, your first traffic stop. How's that going to affect you? Are you going to Are you going to get out there by yourself? Do you want backup? We talked about that. You know, and he's I'll, I'll get out there. And I just think you know that nothing's really changed. I mean, in 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 the household, the thoughts of changing our tactics basically was the only thing that we talked about of how we do certain certain aspects of our job. You know, I didn't have time to think about it. Like I said before, I was I was working. And I kept working, and I kept working. I think that's what got me through the whole thing. That's how I, that's how I processed the whole whole. Uh, I don't think about this at all. I don't think about this whole incident until someone brings it up. You know, and that's how I deal with it. Well, I everybody just, deals with stress in different ways. Whatever yeah. works for you. I'm a little bit the same way. Like when I go to deal with my stressors, I just throw myself in my work, whether that be at the farm or here or that kind of thing. I'm the same way when i i'm not like being shot traumatic like that but you know like but but the thing is that you know we we deal with our traumatic experiences differently each and every one of us just because i was shot doesn't take away that your traumatic experience is no more important than mine was or yours or the sheriff's you know so and that's one thing i did learn was that you know going to therapy i've seen a lot of people going in and out of therapy and i got to meet a lot of people and discussing a lot of different things you know what how they got hurt and you know what they were doing at that time and and i learned real quick that they might have broke their leg riding a bicycle but it was still traumatic to them even more so than mine taking four rounds i mean they still got to get back on that bike exactly so so that's what i've and that's what i've told people you know from on and off again that you know it doesn't matter what your traumatic experience is it still ranks up there high as my shooting because I might not see it as a, as a high traumatic experience, but I'm not you. Yep. And you got to respect that with people. And, and I think that's where we lose a lot of it is the fact we don't respect what other people go through. You know, we talked about the communication portion of the spouses and everything. Uh, the, the, when everybody got shot, no one knew who, was getting, who got shot and what, what to do. And everybody was, everybody was kind of lost. The family was kind of lost of where's everybody at? I think we fixed that a little bit with the communication process of uh, people's phone numbers and contacts and everything. And they, um, I think it was uh, Cammy Ryan, I think, or somebody came up with that, like a tree of phone calls and or phone listings of 
the officers and everything else, so we know who to communicate with. That way, they're not finding out from Facebook or Snapchat, and they can. They're still going to. Yeah, they're yeah. still going to. There's I mean, it just spreads like wildfire it does. when it comes to that yeah. situation. But the speed with which information is distributed these days is insane. We even find it in our job where, you know, typically we give death notifications to people. So if your family member died in a car wreck or whatever, we are coming to your house, knocking on your door, and saying your family member is dead, and giving you the respect of a face to face, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's to the point now where people are driving by the scene or whatever and they're snapping or Facebooking or whatever and we're not even able to give people the decency of giving them the proper notification because it's going out there. And I don't know if people really consider that and how that could affect. I mean, we've been sitting here talking about mental health, of how that affects people. So it's it's just uh, something to keep in mind. And so speaking of the mental health, like what as far as you and your family, like what, what are some things that that your family dealt with or that changed or anytime my wife hears sirens now she locates me because she has that fear it's going to happen again she likes to be like if i'm going like going somewhere she wants me to call her afterwards and say everything's okay i'll be home in an hour or so just to help her give her peace of mind i was diagnosed with anxiety depression and ptsd so that is on my record now in the medical field do i think i suffer from it no but i have several people watching me the sheriff Nick, you know, my wife, my wife watched me like a hawk. But you're also not afraid to make a phone call to that guy. No. I, I forget his name that you talk to. Pat Hinkle. Yeah. That you, you, when you are having a time where you're maybe struggling or something, maybe not even with that incident, but maybe something else that you yeah. don't hesitate to reach out, which I think is very uncommon in our line of work. It is because it's still taboo in our line of work. When I do my presentation, one of the questions I ask is how many people talk to a therapist. And you'd be surprised how many officers won't raise their hand that have talked to a therapist. You know, they'll come up to me afterwards and say, yeah, I was too embarrassed to tell you, but yeah, I've talked to a therapist. And that's what I'm trying to get away from. I'm trying to get away from the embar- the, the, the feeling of embarrassment yeah. because it's not making you a weaker person. In my opinion, it makes you a stronger person because you realize that there's a problem and now you're doing something about it. It's no different. You, you're going out working out to keep yourself physically fit to do this job and you, you pull a muscle. Or you injure yourself. Are you not going to go see a doctor to get to get fixed? You know, it's the same. You know, your mind's the same thing as your body. It's just yep. you get injured in certain ways. And when it's your physical body, you go to a doctor and nobody thinks anything less. But if you get injured in the mind and you go try to get help, then all of a sudden you're an outcast. And that's what we're trying. That's what I'm trying to change. I'm also trying to get it changed where administrators go to their to their city council or county commissioners or whatever form of government they have and do a uh, no questions asked policy of, of mental mental health. If you need to go get talk to a therapist. There should, it should be unlimited. And, yeah. and, and, and it's not because it, there's only so many paid sessions, which I think is a crock because mm-hmm. I mean, there's no, they don't do, they, they're not doing this job. Yeah. Okay. They're not doing our job. They just see what's going on. They don't know what's going on in their in going in their head. Well, a lot of times they're looking at it and they just see the dollar signs of how much this is costing us versus how much this helps. And I've, I've had a discussion before with with commissioners or whomever. I don't care. You can't put a price on a life. You can't put a price on someone to help somebody. You can't put a price on someone doing the job that needs to be done. Yep. Period. Well, here's the way I would phrase it: of 
you know, the average law enforcement officer, you probably, if, if you're talking about from the time that you start them, equip them, train them, get them on the street, you guys would probably know this figure better than me, but I would assume it's probably somewhere in the tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Sure. So you can spend a little bit of money fixing what you broke, or you can lose all that money that you just put into this person because now we have to hire someone new. Exactly. So you it's, would, it's a would, pennies on the dollar thing. You would think it's that easy. But it's not. It's like talking to a tree sometimes. Well, and it's like it's like you said, it's it's a taboo and it's also not something I think that is fully understood in the world just in general of there has been a lot of time of not just in our line of work, but in our society in general of buck up, swallow it down, deal with it. Well, that's the stiff. My presentation that I talk about, I never realized how limited this conversation is with people. Nobody wants to talk about it. No, and especially I, I hear from a lot of different agencies, they thank me for putting myself out there with this because nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to show that they're broken. How we all are. Exactly. Every single one of us. Exactly. Some shape or form, we're, we are all broken. We could all use a form of therapy to get us through life struggles. You know, my wife, like I said, she watches me like a hawk. If I change just a little bit, are you okay? Do we go talk to somebody? You know, sheriff. How are you feeling today? <coughs> and I have no problems telling him. Yeah, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm delegating this out. Okay, that's all I wanted to hear. He'll turn around and walk away. Because he knows that I'm going to keep myself grounded. I'm not going to let myself get to that point again to where 100 hours into it, and I'm, I'm stressing. Well, I think that uh, the, the response that I received, at least at Sterling PD from Derek, was through with Corey's incident and with your guys's incident we each time were asked uh well we well we were basically sat down and we debriefed it and Derek told us like butt hurt off like right now things that need to be said this is the time to say them if somebody fucked up tactically if somebody did something they weren't supposed to whatever butt hurt off this is the time to have that conversation we were able to have that unfiltered conversation but then afterwards we were also told here's the deal if you feel that you need mental health, it will be provided to you. End of story. No questions asked. And that was Derek's, you know, I don't know if that was necessarily something in any type of a policy or whatever, but with Derek being who he he is, it was going to happen. And I had no question in my mind that that's the way it was going to be. So we were encouraged, which I didn't necessarily do with your, your guys' incident, but I did reach out with Corey's, but I'll discuss that kind of a different day because that didn't go well. Thanks to Rona. Um, but it was, it was something that we were encouraged at Sterling PD to do. And I think the thing that's missing from the equation right now is we've never debriefed either one of these. We've never sat down as law enforcement and fire and EMS and had these conversations with butt hurt off. Like there are times that like, like one of the things I want to say when with Corey's incident of like when we were on the SC9 PSAP channel, when we're, I'm in an active incident with a barricade subject and we're trying to communicate with each other, why the F do I give a crap where an ambulance is parking? Like they were parking ambulances on PSAP. Hey, back in right here. Okay. You go here. No, no. <laughs> this is like a, the tactical channel that we're dealing with a guy that's shooting at people. I don't give a shit where an ambulance is parked. Like those are the conversations that we really need to have. Problem- and I would really encourage you guys as administrators to set up. The problem with that, though, is that we can set it up all day long, but with other agencies, you'll never get that butt hurt off switch. Someone's going to get butt hurt. Ego's getting in the way. Ego's getting in the way. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm good at admitting my faults. If I'm doing something wrong, I have no problem admitting it because I can learn from it, yep. you know, and I wish other people would take that, but other people don't, you know, it's like, no, this is what I said. So this is what's going to be. And it's the right way. And that, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, in my brain, because it's like, we're not only do you represent the, your department, but you represent the people under you as a leader, not a boss as a leader. Right. And you're also a leader of your community. And the only way we can get better is to have those hard conversations for just like what your wife did mm-hmm. of knock shit off. Yep. Pick yourself up and let's F and go. And those are some of the conversations we need to have. But on the flip side of the coin, I think it's also a good thing that we're not experts at how to handle officer involved <laughs> shooting events. Right. Exactly. If we were at the point where we were tactical gurus at this, then, then, Oh crap. <laughs> We're getting shot at all the time, and, and we know how exactly how to handle this stuff. But we can we can learn so much because I've even learned from you guys, and I've sat down and chatted this with you probably a dozen times or more. Um, I know with you, I've chatted with it a lot. And so I've learned things today sitting here that I didn't know until today, until this podcast. Well, and we can learn so much from each other. I mean, there's so much institutional knowledge like for instance eddie beckett could have brought something to the equation he's no longer in law enforcement caleb Rankin could have brought something to that conversation he's no longer in law enforcement we're losing institutional knowledge that we can never get back right we can never and we will never learn from if we don't do this and we don't have these conversations well i do know one thing during my recovery i think i mentored more people during that recovery than i was mentored (laughs) Because we'd have a lot of front porch conversations, and you'd be surprised how many how our shooting affected so many people in Rice County. I mean, first responders, law enforcement, EMS, and fire. They'd come by the house, and and we'd just sit out there and talk for hours, and I'd sit there and listen. Well, and some of the things you were told by those first responders. So it some of those their perspective on like life as well. Mm-hmm. Is that we? Yeah. Okay. Again. Some of those people are not in those lines of work anymore. And we have now lost that institutional knowledge yep. that that if we do now sit down and have those conversations, those people are going to be present. And while you're losing a little bit, who knows? That could be a life-changing, altering piece of information for someone that's struggling with something. Yep. Well, like we had that one debrief, you know, I was asked why I, I did what I did during an incident. And then once I explained why I did it, Oh. Yes, exactly. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not pissed at you no more. <laughs> you know, because they seriously thought that I'd find, I found my trigger point and didn't want to respond to a scene. No, there's knowing from my, learning from my experience, we all want to be the alpha person. We all want to be the first one on scene. We all want to be. Oh, yeah. In the fight. In the fight. Nobody wants to be on the backside of it. I know firsthand you need that backside. You need that backside because the stress goes way out the window if you don't have someone there. You know, and and so that's where I put myself. You know, I could be either place in the fight or on the backside of it. But I just know I know our cops. And we're we're all alpha males and we're gonna be in that fight. Well, and you also talked about when once you finally received word that David had ended his own life, you knew, okay, I'm safe now. Mm-hmm. You had that internal 
kind of pressure release is what you told me. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. Right. But where, okay, I'm safe. And you didn't have to worry about that. Like there were there were still many other things that oh. were in in the equation. But my, my wife watched me have nightmares up until that time. You know, because I was I was under anesthesia still because I just got scanned. But she about every she said about every minute and a half she'd see me jump. Well, I remember seeing that muzzle flash while I was out. That's what I kept seeing was that muzzle flash. So I'd jump when they came in uh, between one and two in the morning, and the only place they could touch me was the top of my head because it's the only place it wasn't bloody. And it was one of our former former deputies, part-time deputies, Casey Shrog. He come in, patted me on top of the head and said, David's dead. Since that time, I haven't had a nightmare since. Well, and that's why I wanted to segue into that because of the importance of having someone there. And that was one of the lessons that we learned with your incident was everybody kind of went to handle the problem went to the, you know right. be, be in the game or whatever and there was nobody there with not just not just with you but also for the safety and security of the hospital as well like we right. had firefighters that were around there but at the end of the day they didn't have the tools necessary to combat someone that was violent and was goal-oriented behavior and had a gun right you know the best they could do you know would be to radio and say oh he's here and then we're all having to come from now 30 point, miles away point to get b there. back to point c yeah and see that was a lesson learned yeah for, for the second shooting the guys yeah which was one of the reasons that he went there he went there as we pass each other yeah he was i mean i know it's more complex than that but yeah but, it, but the, the the simplicity of it it's still there you still need to have somebody on that backside yeah you know and and it's not that i didn't that i'd fault anybody for not being that person on the backside i just knew it had to be done so that's what i did yeah. Well, and we came full circle from, you know, where you, your incident to now where we went into another one and the things that we learned and the things that we addressed. And I know that my family changed and my kiddos dealt with some things, um, you know, with separation anxiety of certain things like my daughter suffers from some of that stuff and of just leaving and not knowing what's going on, uh, learn some hard lessons with my parents of letting them know that I was okay because nobody, oh, yeah. nobody else they, had. You know, they were, they were spot on with me. They did, took, took care of my dogs and such. And, uh, I think your mom has a new friend, my dog tank and <laughs> she loves tank to death and everything. I think that's pretty much my go-to all the time is my dogs, you know, my dogs, my wife, you know, my kids are grown. My my kids don't live in Rice County. Uh, they're grown. So, you talk about how I dealt with it. I just, I just work. That's what I do. You know, my wife. I always tell my wife when I was in the military, I'm coming home, no matter which way I look at it. I'm coming home. And that's what I. That's what I always tell my wife when she's always like, "Be safe." I'm like, yep, that's that's the plan. I mean, I can't make you guarantees, but I'm gonna do everything in my power to ensure that I walk through that door again. And she doesn't. She doesn't go back to those days and think that when I leave the, leave the house, you can't think that, you know, about getting shot and everything. No. So, you know, she goes about her, go about her day the way she goes about her day. You now, know, but. like I said, the only time my wife, her anxiety gets the best of her is if she hears sirens, multiple sirens. Yeah. Like yep. last night. Yeah. 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 Um, she'll locate me to see where I'm at. And I'm fine with that. You know, people are like, Oh, you're going to let your wife locate you? I ain't got nothing to hide. <laughs> I'm getting a 44-ounce drink, dang it. Yeah. I said, <laughs> she can locate me. I don't care. I mean, what's worse? You know, she'll call me up. What are you doing? Hey, I'm in a car chase. Did you locate me? 
<laughs> you know, you're doing 101. What's the fast truck go? Yeah. And yeah. she goes, she's like, okay, I'll let you go. Okay, okay bye. That, I love that's, you. The, that's the sheriff's favorite thing, too. You're running code somewhere, and he's trying to call you. And I'm like, seriously, I'm driving a car at 120 miles an hour right now. I'm not talking on the phone. He has learned I do not answer my phone. I don't. I don't no. answer the phone anymore. You need me, you can call me on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I just want to take the chance to say, like, just thanks for taking the time out of your guys' busy days. I mean, especially, you know, you guys that you're constantly on call. Chad, you know, you're checking your phone every time something comes up. Make sure that your your deputies and your staff and everybody's good. And it was and sharing this because I know that for me, every time I share this, it's almost like it gets a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm actually surprised that I didn't break down at all in this as far as. Uh, some of the things that I even talked about that used to just make me choke and I, and I, it was silence because they're, I like tried to keep from absolutely breaking down. So I think that's an important key as well. It doesn't matter as much of who you talk to as long as you're talking. Right. And it's not a one-off, one-and-done, you spill your guts, the pressure's released. It's it's definitely a, a process mm-hmm. like anything else. You're just like you talked about recovering from the sports injuries. That's a process, recovering physically. Yep. Your brain's the same exact way. It's a process. It's not, I go to physical therapy once and I'm done to get back on the field. I don't go to talk to someone once and now all my problems are solved. You still got that bracelet on, don't you? So, yeah, there's only uh, there's only one way this is coming, this bracelet. He actually gave me this. He was wearing this. Yeah, Chad, yeah, Chad cut it off after his shooting. No, no. Uh, either I die or he dies. This one, this comes off. Same thing with this one. This one's for TK Bridges. You can't even read what it says anymore. It's so smooth and it's fragile. I don't take it off. So there's the only two ways that those come off is one of those two dudes die. I'm either putting it in your casket or you're taking it from me. <laughs> one of the two. I really appreciate you guys being here and just working through this with us. And I really hope it raises some awareness on so many fronts. I mean, we've, yep. we've talked through so many things here. And is there anything else you want to add? Anything we haven't asked? Anything that you think may be important? Well, I just want I want anybody listening to this knowing that if they do need somebody to talk to, they can reach out. Sorry, my phone. There you go. <laughs> but um, they can reach out to me. I mean, that's I think that that needs to be said more and more where people aren't afraid to make a phone call. You know, I am not by any means a licensed therapist. I'm just your average cop. So that's an important thing. So how, how would we link up with you guys and contact you guys? Like, do you have social media? Do you like, what's, what's the best way to reach out and contact you? My wife has social media. If you reach out through her, just make sure you put it, address it to me. Yeah. She'll let me know. And her name is Angela, Angela Angela Murphy Yep, on on Facebook, Angela Joe Murphy. Yep. On Facebook. Uh, Yep. And she's also got my name attached to her name. So it's in parentheses. It's got Chad Murphy. That's the best way to try to get a hold of me. I could give you my email address, and people are going to be like, what? Huh? Huh? What? <laughs> well, um, you say for people to reach out, and, and I think that was something sometimes I miss of, like, how do people contact you? They may be interested. I mean, because the thing with this podcast medium is this may make its way to Bolivia. Right. And some person may hear that and may be like, wow, I'm struggling with the same thing, and I don't know how to navigate this. And they may re- or, or New York City or you name it. Well, that's like I said. This is going to go anywhere. We receive messages from Florida, New Jersey. And we had a dispatcher reach out to my wife in New Jersey, praying for my recovery. You know, she heard about it. I mean, this went coast to coast. This went 
you know, our shooting went viral. I mean, it really did. And I want to give back for that, you know, with the amount of support that, that I receive personally that I know of. And I'm sure the sheriff received the same amount. But absolutely, I want to be able to give back for that. And if I can help one person navigate through life with this, then because I still, I mean, I follow people. I, I, I do. I read the articles. You know, I, I know of a gentleman that his long life uh, dream job was to be a cop. Went to the academy, less than a year. He's medical retired from a gunshot wound. One, one single gunshot wound. One single gunshot yeah. wound. You know, but his spirit is still there. He's not. He's not depressed. He's not blame blame. He's he's still fighting. He's still his next chapter is just waiting to be written. And for me, that just that speaks volumes for him. You know, because he's not giving up on life. You know, and I see that in so many different articles I read how they can't do what they want. So they're giving up on life. So, Sheriff, how do we reach out and contact you? What are the, are you on social media or? I do have Facebook. I do have a sheriff's page, but my wife is usually the person that does all the social media stuff and everything. Uh, you can reach out and t- contact her, uh, be Angie Evans. Uh, she has a Facebook page. So. Or you call the, call the office. Call the oh, Rice yeah, County Sheriff's yeah. Office. You know, we'll six- get you in contact with people. That you want to contact us? We'll you know. Our number is six two zero two five seven seven eight seven six. Option two. Right. And you know the sheriff's saying we'll put you in touch with people. No, if you want to talk to me directly, you call that number. Ask for me. I will call you back. Yep. If or, you're, I mean, if you're you not can reach out to me or Nick, and we can point you in the right direction yes. towards these guys and that kind of thing too. You know, like I said, it's it's one of those things where I feel that not only for my local community that I need to give back to, but it's also the extended community that offers so much spiritual support emotional support for us that you know we've made a lot of good friends through this journey still keep in contact with people it strengthens some friendships you know for me i mean people that i used to work with before it's made that friendship even tighter i would just like to say thank you to all agencies that came to help us and also all of rice county all first responders all community entities that served us with food, drinks, fundraisers, fundraisers, everything. All local agencies, all local LEO agencies, all LEO agencies that responded here. You know, I saw faces in the hospital. I'm like going, wow, he's here. Wow, he's here. You know, and it's just, they care. It doesn't matter who you are. They care. And I think... Uh, Rice County did a fantastic job, period. And I think uh, you can't can't thank them enough because they are multi multitasking throughout the the day. One's a firefighter, one's EMS by night, LL the next day. But you see a face of wow, that person's here and, and he's going to help you. Yeah, there were a lot of people that day that you know haven't been necessarily mentioned by name, but that doesn't mean that you. You were not a value add to the situation. I mean, like I said, the fire guys and oh, stuff walking so many. the street. You there's know. so many. I just I can't name them. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's why I'm I'm hesitant to say that we're not liked. You know, and that we're not that nobody likes us. You know, the media is telling us that there was probably what five hundred plus at your residence. Oh yeah, easily. And you know and, what? And good thing you had all that property around your house for people to stand. <laughs> and, and and thank good and, and and thank goodness for social media because we made. 
all these phone calls and people want to know. There was businesses calling me on the phone directly. Hey, where are you guys at? Where are you guys at? I go, we want to stand outside. We worked, you know, at certain local businesses along the road before Chad's residence on the south side of uh, Sterling at the time. And uh, I said, we're five minutes out. Okay, thanks. And it's just, it, it was a special moment. That was, I think everybody, my personal goal was to get him home. Okay. I think that was everybody's goal was to get Chad home. I think that was Chad's goal to get himself home. And then, oh, yeah, I wanted a cigarette. And then basically, <laughs> you know, I think the, re- the, the recovery, what he, where he was at on the fourth day in the hospital was, was basically he needs to be home because whatever he's at home now, he can do at home. And we're there for him. Once he's home with us, we'll take care of him from there. And we took, and you know, we took care of him the best we could. He took care of himself the best he could through physical therapy. And here we are today talking about it and still, uh, Moving forward two and a half years later. Yeah, still kicking for sure. Yeah. I want to thank you guys for what you do. Um, well, thank you. Giving thank us you. the peace of mind at night in Sterling, Rice County. You know, like all the first responders, everything. You know, you guys are <coughs> putting up a good fight and you're really doing it the right way. You know, mm-hmm. you're getting out there and you're trying to help people with mental health. And you're not just like sweeping under the rug, you know. It takes good men like you guys in order to fix our societal problems we have. So I just want to say thank you once again. You're welcome. So glad you guys came on. Yeah. Well, so thank you everybody for listening to the podcast. Uh, give us a rating and a review. And if it was good, let us know if it sucked. Also let us know if there were any issues, uh, give it a share, please, by all means, especially this one when it comes to the mental health aspects and, 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 and what people can learn from this, please share this podcast and, Anybody that you know may be struggling from those kinds of things. You can find the podcast at thehigherpoints.com. We're on Instagram at thehigherpoints as well as the Higher Points podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you guys next time.